It's Dan. I'm the main host, your main host, and join me of Eventually Super Train. This is episode 82. Hooray! We are a short-lived TV show podcast. I say we, myself and the guest host you'll hear, uh, are part of a short-lived TV show podcast. We uh, cover shows that never got enough love when they originally aired, and eventually we will cover Super Train, maybe this year. Uh, so, uh, if, if this is your first listen, um, uh, welcome. Welcome. I, I hope you enjoy it. Um, each episode is made up, uh, generally, each episode is made up of three segments. And we are discussing three different short-lived shows. And we go episode by episode through them. And so, in this one, we are on... Where the heck are we? We are going to start off with myself and um, my good friend, uh, author Mitchell Hadley, discussing episode 32 of... Bourbon Street Beat. We're in 1960. We're in the W. Hermanos era. And then that will be followed up with my podcast pal, author, wit, raconteur, um, Amanda Reyes, and myself discussing episode 12, the final episode that aired of 1983-84's Masquerade, the Glennie Larson show. And then I, myself, will be discussing a show episode one of a show and you'll you'll find out when we get to it what it is i ain't saying it here but let's uh yeah without further ado please uh join me let's hop into episode 32 of bourbon street beat suitable for framing bourbon street beat bourbon street beat bourbon street beat starring richard long in New Orleans, Andrew Duggan. This is the blues. With Arlene Howell and Van Williams. Produced by Warner Brothers. Bourbon Street Beat, episode 32, suitable for framing. Directed by Leslie H. Martinson. I don't actually have the disc with me here, but I believe. Um, uh, involved in the script are Gerald Drayson Adams, Charles Hoffman, and of course, W. Hermanos. And with W. Hermanos being the main writer here, May 16th, 1960, I'm going to keep this one very simple so we can sort of dive um, right into the fun because we, we, we get some good we get some good chatting going on. This is a this is a Rex lead episode rex basically kind of meets a gal flirts with a gal learns that she uh is married ends up going out to their house in like the middle of a swamp and uh there's a murder and rex is framed for it and has to kind of keep out uh the way of the police while um uh trying to solve the crime and he's assisted by rita moreno that's about it really we'll go pretty in depth into it i didn't i wasn't just let's it's w hermanos let's 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 uh, let's hop listen to this blast and then mitchell i will be on the other side of it bourbon street beat the 
suitable for framing. This is not the Columbo episode with Ross Martin. This is the episode with Rex Randolph uh, getting involved in some rather shady stuff with uh, possibly one of my favorite actresses, who we'll talk about soon. Uh, and this is the third of the W. Hermanos episodes. Um, if you're a W, if if you're tuning into this because of the W. Hermanos hashtag I put on Avengers Super Train, then hey, welcome back. If you're into this because um, you're wondering who the hell W. Hermanos is, maybe my um, my co-host for this segment, the great Mitchell Hadley, can give us just one little more description of who W. Hermanos was after he tells us how he's doing. Greetings, Daniel. I am Hello. doing very well. How about you? Doing good, doing good. Um, let's talk. Did, would you mind doing a little just W. Hermanos recap for folks? Sure. Always happy to, you know, as a charter member of the W. Hermanos fan club, I'm always glad Woo-hoo! to be able to spread the word here. <clears throat> but uh, the um, short story version of this, W. Hermanos is a pseudonym that is used by Warner Brothers whenever they have a script that is coming from a previous series, a previous show that is tweaked, rewritten, adapted to the particular circumstances of this show. Um, It was done because of a Writers Guild strike, so uh, Warner Brothers was able to continue production of their shows by uh, redoing these scripts, and the script credit went to W. Hermanos. The W, as an inside joke, stands for for Warners, and uh, uh, Hermanos is Spanish for brothers, so Warner Brothers. That's the uh, that's the joke, and. One of the trademarks, as we are learning here, of a W. Hermanos script is that having originated with another series, or even movie possibly, um, we are seeing our heroes being put increasingly into situations that are not typical of the series as a whole. We've seen... um, Rex sent down to South America. We have seen Cal um, working uh, involved with a a boys reformatory. And now we have another episode where Rex is on the road. He's not in New Orleans. And uh, one of the big points that we had made from the very beginning of this series is that the uh, the production crew and the writers had done an admirable job of making New Orleans a character in this series. The unique atmosphere, the architecture, the strange character of, of New Orleans. And that was either integral to the plot, as in some of the cases where we had Mardi Gras-based shows, or you had something like voodoo or another element of superstition or of decrepit aging families that now were without money. But these were all things that you think of as gothic, old South New Orleans types of shows. And uh, these last three Hermanos episodes have taken us into a different uh, dimension, not necessarily worse it could be but it isn't it isn't 
an axiom that a Hermanos episode is a fish out of water episode is going to be disappointing. And uh, this one is not disappointing. And I think um, we'll get into the plot, but certainly you've got to say that the the guest cast means a lot in this episode. You have, first of all, Rita Moreno, who um, is a year away from winning an Oscar for supporting actress for West Side Story. Uh, and, and you can tell, you can just tell in this episode that she's going to be a big, big star. She just jumps off the screen. And um, so she is terrific. Um, then you've got the erstwhile client, of Rex, and remember, as a detective episode, you've got to have a client. And in this case, Rex's client is played by Barbara Lord. Now, I don't mean to disparage Barbara Lord's career at all by saying this, but to us today, she's probably better known as the mother of Patrick Warburton. And uh, you'll remember him. He's been in The Tick, Rules of Engagement, what? Seinfeld, Archer. Uh, and if you're like that. me, you don't watch any of these shows, you probably recognize him from those national car rental commercials that he's done in the last couple of years. So, again, no disrespect intended, but oh. uh, that is probably what she's known for now is being his mother. Um, you've also got Craig Hill and, uh, Craig Hill, he was one of the pilots in Whirlybirds. And, uh, there's a nice yes. tie in in that because in this episode, he plays a pilot as well. He's not flying a, a, a helicopter. He's flying an airplane, but, um, there is, um, a scene in the episode where Rex asks him more or less, how did you wind up here? Uh, doing what you're doing. And I so wanted him to say something like, well, I used to fly a helicopter for a living, and then I got this job <laughs> offer. And um, I, I, I mentioned this at the time of the episode. I uh, said it out loud, and my wife said, you know, if Whirly Birds had been a Warner Brothers show, he probably would have said that. So yes, <laughs> yes, that was, yes. That was uh, syndicated. Nice right, yeah. And, yeah. Considering that Whirly Birds was still in production or was still in first run syndication when this episode was on, certainly the audience was familiar with it. They would have recognized him. They might have even thought that this was a little bit of an inside joke if they were inclined to look at those kinds of things that, ha, 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 you know, we've got a pilot on Whirlybirds and here he's a pilot of an airplane. That's clever. But uh, I think that um, although we have a we have a uh, damsel in distress story, another kind of cliche of um, of the detective genre. But uh, despite that, or perhaps because of it, I think this winds up being a stronger episode because of of a, a strong supporting cast and some really uh, good performances. All right, uh, Mitchell, and I would recommend if 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 you've never watched um, uh, the Tick with Patrick Warburton from two thousand two thousand one, there there are only eight or nine episodes, and it's actually my my wife and I. It's one of our favorite shows. We probably watched it about five or six times. It's it's a joy. It's a joy. Um, so uh, having said that. 
what do I think about this episode? Hmm, yes, thank you for asking, Dan. BBB. Um, uh, um, I, I, you know what? I, I, I really enjoy this episode. I, you know, here's what it is. I, I, the, the location. I, okay. No, I have to go even further back. Um, I think the opening when he meets the sort of the lady, uh, pa- pa- Patrick Warburton's mom, um, uh, when he meets her, that 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 is it's. I don't know if it's a bit rushed or what. It, it feels a little off to me. I get what they were doing, but um, then he suddenly goes to what is it like the Cypress Gun Club or this lodge or whatever the heck it is. And meets her yeah. husband, mm-hmm. yeah, Lucian Saint Clair. I, I I may have been making that name up, but I feel yeah. like that is his name. <laughs> okay, and, and, and so she goes. And the thing about the episode is that it it kind of goes there, and you get kind of like the he's trying to kill me. Is my wife telling you that I'm trying to kill her? And then you get the big twister Rooney, suitable for framing, and somewhere in there. You get and I and you've already mentioned her, um, but you get the the element of the episode that kept me going through a few moments where I thought it was a little weak, and that would be Rita Moreno, who I grew up with on Electric Company. Uh, I love in West Side Story, and I pretty much love in everything I've ever seen her in. This is her in her absolutely. Oh my God gorgeous stage and you just look at her and it's like oh my god what do you want me to do rita i'll do it anything you want you want me to burn my house i'll do it yeah so and she's so good and she's so charismatic and she's so charming and her and rex together are just those are great scenes i really like those scenes great chemistry Um, Yes, I think yes, yes, I, and they're so good. They're so much fun together. The I, I, I once the, the 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 issue I have with the episode, and I feel like this probably comes from the original, is the moment at the end where Rex is like, "Well, I can't. Oh, I can't." That's kind of a spoiler, but there there's something Rex does at the end where you're like, "Really?" And then there's like a period of time passes. That they don't fully, you know, like a few episodes ago, we had six hours till midnight, where it felt like hours and hours were passing, but it was really only like 15, 20 minutes. At the end of this episode, there are bits where things seem to pass in like 10, 15 minutes, a couple of days, but that really should take several months. And I, I, I wasn't fully convinced by the ending of this episode. But up until the ending, I'm pretty convinced, apart from the fact that so Rex, you know, is is obviously he's suitable for framing, so he's in trouble. And and so he spends all his time hanging out with Rita Moreno. And here's the thing. If I ever get convicted of murder, I would like to spend all the time before the cops find me hanging out with Rita Moreno. I'd hang out with her today. I'd hang out with her in 1960. I have 70. I I have no. She. I remember her yelling a lot during Electric Company. So maybe I'll take her during 60 when she wasn't yelling up. But that could just be me. She she's fantastic. Whatever she's up to. So um. But there's a weird sort of um thing in the episode where um uh, uh 
Rex is trying to get out of there because they're after him for this the framing. Um, but he just kind of hangs out with Rita Moreno for like 20 minutes. And no one seems to figure it out. I guess it's okay. I mean, I was I was fine with it. I enjoyed watching their scenes together. But there was kind of a lack of um, like, you know, if they're on the property, why not look around the property? You know, and it, it was just that that was a little weird mm. to me. But I, I didn't mind it. And then when Cal shows up, it's great. And Kenny is still doing the same junk he's been doing for ages. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, he's I, starting I, to get some real work from the two of them, isn't he? Yes, <laughs> yes. When, I, I, when, when, oh, please! Showing them how you know he's showing the women how to uh, how uh, the perfect golf swing or the perfect yes. diving um, motion. Yes. And then the, the Rex, Rex had this one marvelous look. And one of when when he is returning to the office oh, yes. in one of the yep. Cal stories, where where he's looking like what's been going on while I've been gone, what's happening so to busy. my firm? <laughs> They're so busy. I mean, I I feel like almost like they've they've left Kenny to be the secretary, and he all this stuff he's doing well, is yeah. just to keep him. Just, yeah, yeah. And there, you know, you can see Kenny. We've got good news and bad news for you. The bad news is you're the new secretary. The good news is that you can interview as many beautiful young women as you want to see if you can find anybody to take your job. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. And I, I, I feel like there's there's a moment too where um, Cal is going into his office. Oh, is this at the end of this episode? We see um, we see uh, the main room again with the spiral staircase and everything. We haven't seen yes. that in like three or four episodes. Yes. That was surprising. I, I, I'd almost been worried like that with the Writers Guild, like they cut the budget or something and like gotten rid of those sets. And we just had the corner of... Or the of... Melody took them. Oh, possibly. <laughs> possibly. Like, yeah. we don't, we'd only had the, the front room and the corner of Cal's office. But we do see the spiral staircase yeah. for, a, for a sort of wah-wah-wah joke at the end. Um, but I, um, <laughs> I, I do... I, I think... Um, Here's the thing. Again, uh, quite a bit of it doesn't feel because I don't know where this this gun club is. It doesn't feel particularly like Bayou-y to me. It just feels like a forest sort of thing. So it doesn't feel Bourbon Street beat to me. But the writing is still decent it's still pretty good it tells a good story the framing is fun like i said the the moment he's gets framed it seems like the cops get really lazier and and they're like yeah we looked around here well why not in that building uh <laughs> come on uh he's going to be in there we're fine right here but the thing is when she when when she when he's in there he's in there with Rita Moreno so i can't argue with that <laughs> So so it's almost like you're with you're a strategically like, placed bubble. Yes, it's 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 almost like you 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 know you like you made a portion of your story lazy, but you put an actress in there who I will watch do anything. So, uh, okay, I'll watch it. That's uh, I just said it. So so yeah. So apart from the ending, which we can't really talk about, which I'd love to, but we can't really. Um, I think this is a solid. Uh, not not a, 
again, this isn't a um, an episode I would show to someone for Bourbon Street Beat. This is one you'd have to be well versed in Bourbon Street Beat to watch. Yeah. Um, but but I I, I, I wouldn't I, skip it. Yeah, I wouldn't skip it. Definitely, definitely. Um, uh, b- because if you were to go to one of these episodes where they go to like a couple or a family or something, you go to one of the earlier like Bayou episodes in the old mansion, not this strange lodge. I don't even know what the hell this right. lodge is. Where where are they? What what is this? I'd love to know. Like this is another area of the Warner Brothers lot that I'm not familiar with. I know. Is it even is it even in Louisiana? Yeah, that was my thought too. Because... You would think it would be because she was, she was at the track, so you would think it would be. But there's nothing inherent in the way it's portrayed that suggests it isn't in Palm Springs. Yes, yes, yeah, and and you in the last oh not the last episode what was it I forgot to make two episodes ago oh my god I'm getting a little lax here. There's a moment where the last time Rex was in charge, it's Rex says something like. Hey, can Cal help out? No, he's in Biloxi. Biloxi, that ain't in that. Yes. Where is that? That ain't Louisiana. That's in Mississippi. What's going well, on? He exactly. He, doesn't, he they don't that show. That's not the way these shows work. Like Surfside Six is about Miami and that area there. You know, you know, Seventy Seven Sunset Strip. As far as I know, well, maybe they do. I don't. They do. They go to Oakland or something. I don't know. Maybe they do. Well, they, <laughs> I, I will say this, and I had meant to bring this up earlier in it, a couple of episodes ago when we were talking about um, South America. That actually seems much more like a, a Stu Bailey type of episode from 77 yes. Sunset Strip. That- Not that they do it very often. They don't. But Stu, having had a career in intelligence during the war and being a linguist of some some repute uh, is much more likely to be taking a government assignment or going overseas uh, or 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 someplace else. Uh, if you had told me that this that 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 episode had been plagiarized from seventy seven Sunset Strip, I wouldn't have been surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um actually I have the episode playing right now, and Rita Moreno's in the bathtub. So. Yes, yes. There you go. There you go. A couple of pervs watching the pause <laughs> for a moment of silent appreciation. Yes. Yeah, it's it's funny. Like the the it was uh, like I was I was watching the episode and I was like, okay, I I thought the the opening is a bit awkward the way he meets her the 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 lady. I don't I I was uh, mm-hmm. the the woman who's not Rena Marie. Oh, Patrick Warburton's mother. Um uh and I thought that was slightly awkward because it doesn't it doesn't sort of emph- emphasize um as sort of strong as it should. I feel like um what's going on like cuz she's trying to pull him into her world. And I just felt like he was kind of fooling around her, with her for a bit, and then suddenly he's entrapped in this thing. And I was like, okay, I'm in. Okay, I'm watching. Suitable for framing. I get it. Yep, I know that Columbo episode. Ross Martin's going to show up in a minute. It's going to be awesome. This is going to be great. And then Rita Moreno shows up, and I sat there going, is that Rita Moreno? 
oh my gosh, I'm, <laughs> I'm now watching from beginning to end. It's funny how there are some actors who, who will do that, you know, who will will just like Victor Buono. And I, I don't mean to, you know, yeah. Victor Buono, Rita Moreno. I don't mean to put them on the, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're both great. Um, but 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 it's like the moment I saw Victor Buono, I was like, okay, I'm going to enjoy this, and I did, you know, and I'm in. Yep. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, so, what else do you have on this one? I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just scan my notes here. Well, there's one thing I I need to mention because I've teased it in a previous episode. Last time I talked about um, Cal's quintessential line about uh, you thought I was a sucker oh, and yes. I thought you were a man, and I said that there is a similar line for Rex, and um, if it isn't in this episode it's pretty darn close because there's a scene where without giving away too much of the plot he bursts in finds somebody that he's looking for asleep kind of wakes him up by pointing a gun at him and in the course of the discussion says you'll find a bullet makes quite a sedative and that that is that's that's rex's line and that works for him perfectly Yes, yeah, that's and that's uh, and 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 so far, like I thought the last episode, Deadly Persuasion, was a dud and a half, like a dud, a mm. boring, a boring dud, unfortunately. Which, like, I can actually, I can watch boring too. I I just can't. I I just found it dumb. Um, but um, and it was oh, uh, and it was Cal who I I I I love that character. I love him so much. You know, um, uh, you know, I don't mean to, you know, I, I think he's a great character. Um, but, uh, I, I, here's the thing. I don't know how long W. Hermanos is going to be with us. I don't like to look ahead. Mike, you may throw up some comments that will tell us how long it will be. I call him spoiler Mike, but in the best possible way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, we mean it because we care. We because we your comments are awesome because you you do more research than we do here, Mike. We watch the episodes in depth and talk about them, but you you actually do a lot of the we do some research definitely. You you probably do more than I do, Mitchell. I, I get to, I get really bad because I'm doing Erie, Indiana and Masquerade and and all these things, and I I get a little lost. Um, and also I I just like to um also when I watch shows like this, I'd like to just see them as they go you know i i like to exactly to 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 pretend as if i've never um uh i i well like this one i haven't watched i only watched like the first three or four episodes before i sent you copies and we started talking about it you know but and most of these shows half the shows i've never seen half the shows i've seen all the way through and i like to kind of go through them and just experience them as if i -hmm. was in as if this was May of I think we're in May of 1960 now I think um I I could be wrong let me lean don't move Mitchell don't move I'm over here this episode is <laughs> May 16th 1960 so I'd love to okay. make myself I'd love to I'd love to feel like I'm in May uh 16th 1960 and I eight days I'm, after I was born so I was barely oh, in May of hey! 1960. <laughs> <laughs> five five days after this, I am negative thirteen. 
So, hey, hey, congrats mm. on me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but I, 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 think, I, think, I think one of the things with when I do this show is that um, if I know the show, if I'm familiar, like Joni Loves Chachi, when Amanda and I were doing Joni Loves Chachi so long ago, we knew every Happy Days episode that was um, on either side of it. We knew what was going on. But but this and and lots of other shows that I've been talking about, like The Immortal. When I did The Immortal, I had no clue what was going on with The Immortal. So so it was just like every episode was new and exciting, and I wanted I you, you want to treat it as yeah, like I said, as if you're watching it on that day in May of 1960. Mm-hmm. And and what that yeah. ends up. Oh, please, please. No, I was I, I was going to add to that was it's kind of like our running joke about what happened to Melody. Um, yes. Well, we played along with that for what, maybe four episodes before we finally revealed that that she wasn't going to be coming back to the show. Could we have found that out? Well, I did some research, but I didn't do as much as if I were really determined to find out. And some of that is kind of this way, too. I do a lot of my research after the fact, after the episode is over, but I want to enjoy the episode as it is without having my head cluttered with a lot of other things. I I agree. Like, when, when, uh, like, I think the the episode of Bourbon Street Beat I did the most research for was um, uh, the White White Heat one. Uh, because yeah. I actually, I actually went and watched it to to see what what uh, the differences were, and uh, watch White Heat. Not like I didn't watch the episode I was meant to watch. I that I'm not a douche. I, I do my work. But but no no I, I went and I did the extra. I did the extra work. You know. But I I think it's funny because like um like when I do my minute by minute podcasts um. I, I do I do some research on that um, when I'm talking about these movies, but with these I, I it's it's always an argument with myself of like how much do you want to say about it or how much do you want to just enjoy it as you're watching it mm-hmm. and 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 so I think so far we've done a decent job with Bourbon Street Beat um, uh, and we're in a weird place now definitely <laughs> but but not <laughs> not bad so far i mean i'm just like no. um no we we've got what do we have seven episodes left seven to go yep wow mm-hmm. okay yeah wow all right so i guess um i i'd love to chat with you more about this um and we certainly can but i think you you gotta you gotta go so let's um let's um uh <laughs> we'll chat at least I, seven more times about yeah, we'll 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 chat. Yeah. Um. So let's. Um. Uh. So uh, do you have anything else about this one? I'm just going to scan my my notes one more time just to make sure. Nope. I uh, I think that um, you know suitable for framing. If uh, the title didn't give it away, uh, uh, Rex might get framed. But this, I think that you'll look past that, and it's a thoroughly enjoyable episode. If not a great episode, it's still fun. And yeah. Rita Moreno. Yes, please. I mean, yeah, it's um, yeah, and yeah, and like like we said, her and Rex, they're they're really charming together. It's one of it's one of those things where wouldn't, um, you, wouldn't you have liked wouldn't you have oh. liked to have seen an episode with her and and uh, Sto- Lusty and Cal and her and Rex? 
Yes. Oh, my gosh. I would love it if they had. Well, there's a twist at the end, which means she wouldn't have done this probably. But I would have loved it if she would have been hired on as the secretary. Wouldn't she have been yes. great? Like flirting with Kenny? And because I think, I she think would have been incredible. <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, and and there, there's like like I'm just watching it now, and there's like a scene. They're sitting on the couch together talking, and then they both go outside, and they come back in from outside, and they're like they've been frolicking. And I thought, well, isn't the entire police force right out there? Who cares? They've been frolicking. <laughs> it's fun. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's almost like um, I hesitate to to bring up um, uh, Cal's um, uh, you know. Uh, convertible TARDIS, but may possibly he has some sort of time element that he's using that is bending space and time around that so the two of them can just hang out and just hang out until the time when Rex has to do what he has to do at the end of the episode, which is the stupid part of the episode for me, but I love it up till that point. You are really introducing an entirely new genre of television here. <laughs> I think this is something you you should own this and run with it. <laughs> uh, well, but remember, remember that when you watch that scene where they go out and they come back in and they've been frolicking because they're both like they run and they're like, oh, and Rita Moreno's like holding her coat closed, like, oh my gosh, we had so much fun. Who shows up thirty seconds later? Cal. Hello. Yes. I don't know. I've I've always it's it's funny. Um, I've always said I've always had two theories for where the doctor and Doctor Who will end his, his her life. She will either be the Fonz, which I thought was a great way to end the life. I mean, if you've seen Happy Days, you know how superhuman the Fonz is. <laughs> so so yes. the Doctor will just appear in Milwaukee and be the Fonz. Or I actually wrote a novel like 10 years ago um, that hasn't been published, um, but but it's still very good, that has a, a strange town being created by a weird man who vanishes and leaves everyone to their own devices. But they all say, uh, but as the town goes, gets worse and worse, they all say, he'll come back, he'll return, he'll save us. And he does return and save everyone, and he's the doctor in his last re regeneration. And he's actually Ooh. had to leave to he's actually had to leave to save the he basically what he did was he went somewhere in upstate New York and he created like a trailer park town full of like artists. Uh, but it got taken but he had to leave to save the universe. You don't know that he's the doctor. He just leaves. Suddenly the trailer park is taken over by like corporate folks who begin to exploit everyone and the trailer park like the everyone goes downhill and downhill and downhill and then suddenly one day he shows up and he actually shows up in the novel he shows up the TARDIS accidentally crashes in a nearby lake so he actually rises out of the lake and approaches them like it, I don't I don't mean to make it Jesus like but that that was kind of what it was I was just I this was written like 15 <laughs> years ago and I, I was just like going a little nutty this was before the current run of the series of Doctor Who this was long before that mm -hmm. so so this 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 was just a novel I wrote about a, yeah, a trailer park town and the book is written in a series of vignettes 
and and one of the themes through it is that the man who founded it will return to save us um and and then in the end he does and you learn who he is and I had to be a little vague about who he was but now maybe I can contact the BBC and they'll say yeah do that yeah but yeah so oh, so okay. I uh, yeah thank you thank you it's um I I really liked it too um um but yeah maybe <laughs> maybe maybe Cal wouldn't that be fun if like Cal Cal was uh, the doctor and Rex was his his companion, and they were saving the. World. I don't know where where are we now. I don't know, but uh, but so so I'll stop there, Mitchell. Uh, if if that's all you have, if if that if that's all you have, we've been talking for a half hour. If, I can't if, possibly if, top it. Yeah. If 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 there's if there's nothing else in this one, I don't think I do um, have anything else. Where can I find you online? Um, you can find me at itsabouttv.com, where I do occasionally write about Doctor Who, but I also write about classic television and its relationship with American culture. I look back at old TV guides, see what was on TV on a given day of the week, and all sorts of other cool things. So uh, I think that uh, I think that it would be a good time waster for anybody listening in. I I I I um I would not say a time waster because I, I really enjoy whenever you post something new I really enjoy it. <laughs> I love your, t- your TV guide stuff that's so that's so fascinating to me um yeah that's oh and it's uh, a lot of fun too oh yeah yeah um so uh that is the end of suitable for framing which as we've said is also a Columbo episode so feel free do that do compare and contrast go to 1960 watch uh suitable for framing and then go to i think 1971 i could be wrong there and do the colombo suitable for framing and see what happens and remember however that the colombo suitable for framing was not written under duress during a writer's strike okay i'll leave it at that okay (laughs) everyone thank you so much for listening holy mackerel 32 episodes we only have seven left what do you think mitchell are you ready for them I am not ready to see the show end, but I'm ready for it. Yes, I agree. I agree. So let's um, let's go. What what do we? I don't even know where we are now, but um, there's going to be a theme song of something fun right here. The United States of America would like to invite you to come spy with me. Adventures looking in your window Something out of the ordinary Come with me now and let's explore the secret passions I can see you're someone special It's April 27th, 1984. We are Spying Down Rio. Written by Andrew Schneider. Directed by Sidney Hayes. This is the last episode of Masquerade that aired on the network. There is one more, Flashpoint, which we will be discussing 
very soon. But this is, yeah, so this is the last one. This is, like, folks, like, this is... And Masquerade's <laughs> gone! It's gone! And and so, uh, so and, and as always, I'm here with my good friend, my podcast pal, Amanda Reyes. I want to ask Amanda, how are you doing? I'm okay. I'm sad that this is the last episode. I mean, I know it's not the last episode we'll be talking about, but I'm sad that the world didn't have any more Masquerade after this. Yeah, you know, it's like they should have given it more time. It needed more time. Like, like seven years, seven years. Yeah, exactly. Like Manimal. You know, like at the at Manimal only had eight, but at the end of eight, you could see the potential for craziness, you know. But, um, yeah, they should have given it more time here. Uh, so, um, so spying down to Rio, I suddenly completely completely blanked on what the episode's about but it's oh no 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 i got it i got it here it is. i was like oh my god so, don't ask me no, that's, the no, hardest no. Part. that's the hardest part of the show yes it's trying to figure out what's going on um so the 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 very basic premise of this one is the gang heads down to uh rio because um there a woman named linda hill has been um uh, who was who works in the embassy, uh, U.S. embassy in in Rio, has been killed, and they believe she has been killed by someone within the embassy. So there's a mole in the embassy, and you meet several people who are there, including um, Tab Hunter. Oh, so cool! Including uh, Christina Raines. Yes. And um, and I've forgotten who the other person is, but there's um, I didn't write down, but there's another person. There is, and you know they don't do much with him, but he looks the most suspicious because he's because he's like not Christina Reigns or Tap Hunter. Precisely, yeah. So so the um so so it's 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 basically they're gonna they're gonna send some folks down there to um find out who the mole is, and they send down now who is the gang they send down? Well, do you wanna? How about we didn't do this with the last one? Um, uh, so well, but they're basically going to go down there and try to find out who the mole is. That's the thing. And there are Soviets hanging out nearby. And the head Soviet diplomat is played by the head Nazi in Top Secret. <laughs> I believe I believe he's the one who answers the enormous phone in the very hilarious force perspective shot where the phone rings in the foreground and they're all in the background at the Nazi table. And then he moves closer, 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 and he picks up an enormous receiver. Um, he's got a very strange face. It's like a very good and kind of like gloopy face, which is fun. Um, uh, but uh, I, I, let, let's do this because, like I said, we didn't do this last time. Of of the people they they recruit, who do you have a favorite? Oh, of course I do. Um, Stephen Keats, who is the sort of gumshoe detective that somehow had been in the military and had somehow created surveillance equipment that couldn't be detected, although it is detected later on, and is such a mastermind at it that even though he's only making like, you know, $200 a case or whatever at his mm-hmm. office, um, they bring him in because he can do investigative work and because he built surveillance equipment. And he's Stephen Keats. Yes. He's the son-in-law in Death Wish, and he was in Zuma Beach, and I love him. Yes, yes. We we all love Zuma Beach very much, so we're, yes. we're, we're Zuma Beach supporters all the way. Um, now, I am, uh, let's see, uh, are were there only two other people in this one? I'm looking at my. This notes. is why I'm so worried you're gonna pick the only other one I can remember because now I'm blanking on. <laughs> I can. The I can. Third I, one? I'm gonna. I'm gonna pick. I'm not gonna pick the obvious one. I'm gonna pick the cab driver. Oh, that's who it is. Yes. There's a cab driver, New York City cab driver, who speaks Portuguese and who has a big family who he brings along, and who is basically he's like he's like the stunt man in the previous episode. He's like a stunt driver who they use to kind of do all kinds of crazy um, uh, stunting. Uh, throughout, and he's a fun guy, 
and uh, so and and then the um, is did they only do three on this one? Yeah, um, I can only remember the third guy now, and that's uh, yes. Bill Macy, who plays this uh, this dentist who revolutionized root canal work. Yes, <laughs> thank you, thank you, sir. Thank you. Well, you know, I guess. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know when dentistry started proper, like when it was just nothing but like pulling people's teeth out. But you had to have a moment where that was uh, that was part of the science. So all I can think of is Alan Arkin um, when I see his care in, from the in-laws. Uh, <laughs> and when I when I see because there's a moment where um, uh, um, his character is like about to operate on a woman and she's like, ah, I haven't done anything yet. And all I could think of was the in-laws right there. But those I think are... that this episode throws us off because we have a weird combination here. So instead of having a lot of people go underground with a few people be bad guys, we have just as many potential bad guys as we do people yes. going up. And we have this extra addition of this run. It's not really a runaway, but this sort of drifter played by Eve Plum, yes. who has nothing to do with anything except she's homeless yes. in Brazil or wherever they are. And, and she's she says things to Stephen Keats periodically, and so like so like it's hard to keep track. It's a great episode. I do really like this episode, but like, but like in terms of like how many people went undercover, it's hard to know because there's so many people doing covert things in this, and then there's just people like drifting in saying, "Hey, Stephen Keats, I went to the pyramids of Mexico, and they look better than in National Geographic." And I'm only 18, even though the sh- my show that I started in the Brady Bunch ended in 1974, and I was 17. <laughs> and and please don't look at my hair, is what I think. Oh, but she looked great. I love she, Eve no, Plum. No, I, I adore Eve Plum. I, I, um, I think she's having, um, you know, we all go through phases with our hair. I had my mullet 80s. phase, which lasted yeah. uh, about 14 years. The you know? 80s were hard on everybody. Yes. On everybody. And so the story goes that Aaron Spelling discovered Heather Locklear and put her in Dynasty as Sammy Joe, and she became very popular in that. I guess T.J. Hooker kind of discovered her, but I guess maybe she became iconic when she was doing Dynasty, I think at the same time. But she had that this very 80s feathery hair. And the story goes is that when Aaron Spelling was doing Melrose Place and the first season it was bombing, he decided to bring in Heather Locklear because he always saw, thought of her as kind of a good luck charm. Mm. And... I don't know how true the story is, but apparently he went to her house or he called her and they met for lunch or something. And she had the exact same hair from Dynasty and TJ Hooker. And he was like, no, Heather, I really want you on the show. You're going to save it, which she did. Mm-hmm. Um, I really need John Rowe's place, but not with that hair. And supposedly they gave her a whole new makeover in terms of her hair. I mean, she's already stunning. I mean, there's nothing you have uh-huh. to do. Here, but, um, but anyway, that was the story that went around, um, where Melrose Place hit its stride. So what I'm saying is, we uh, all get. It can happen to anybody. Yes. Yeah. In, in fact, I didn't actually. The first moment when here, here's the thing. I'm I'm a Jan man. Uh, I was a Jan boy. Sure. I was, Jan. I I've said this many times before. Um, back in what 2013, when Hallmark Channel was showing three hours of Brady Bunch a night, Monday through Friday, also three hours of Happy Days. I watched in March of 2014 the entirety of um, Brady Bunch from beginning to end in one month. And so I got to saw, see everyone grow up like this. Yeah. And Jan was grow my up. favorite when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Jan was my favorite when I was a kid. But when you, you watch it, it's, it's like there hits a point in the late fourth season, early fifth season, when Jan becomes, they put glasses on her and they give her those stupid curls where it's like, oh, she's getting hotter than Marsha. 
and we have to we're, we're kind of bringing it down we're toning it down a little but it's it's it's, it's so i've always but the thing is when eve Plum came out in this episode she you know what her haircut reminded me of there's a movie called with um david warbeck Ooh. <clears throat> rat man called <laughs> there is there is yeah our, there's also one called ark of the sun god which everyone should yes. watch and enjoy um but i was just saying miami horror Oh, and I love oh, Miami I know exactly Golem. What you're talking about? I and, love this and movie. I for I forget the the woman's name, but she's also in is it City of the Walking Dead? Umberto Lenzi, the one where all the guys storm out of the um, airplane uh, like oh, crazy in the oh, beginning. Hugo Stiglitz Nightmare, is in it. Nightmare, Nightmare, Nightmare City. City. Nightmare City. Yep, yeah, that the one that ends in the roller coaster. Um, uh, that's not a spoiler. That it, any movie could end on a roller coaster, as far as you're concerned. Laura Trotter. I think is her name. And in Nightmare City, she's beautiful. In Miami Horror, they give her a haircut, which is, I think, beyond questionable is the problem. And that's the thing. Is like, I, 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 like the first time I watched Miami Horror, I was like, I recognize this actress, but that haircut is awful. And then when it, I was like, oh my gosh, it's the woman from Nightmare City. Okay, yeah, I remember her. Yeah, sure. Um, but the Eve Plum, the moment she shows up and she's like, I love my mountains. No, not that she's, I, I'm, I'm not meaning to say like she's she's like a drugged out kind of um, gal. But uh, she shows up and she's like, oh, I just came to see the mountains. And my parents, I send them telegrams. And they don't get back to me. And I sat there watching her going, oh, oh, hey, that's freaking, that's freaking Eve Plum. What? And so, yes, she's in this, and it's awesome. She has nothing to do with the episode. Oh, which, no. Which is, in most ways, less complicated than the previous episode. Although, it, I think the complications that this episode has are um, um, sort of earned complications, sort of, rather than the where's the Spanish Gambit going kind of thing. I well, could be wrong there. Before we get into the plot, I mean, I will just say... One of the things I like about this one is, even though I think it's kind of obvious who the quote-unquote bad guy is, mm-hmm. it's got like a really neat mystery in it. It does. And and that, so even if it's convoluted, it's got this kind of subplot, even though it's attached to the main story, that I think is really fun and cool, and, and it makes good use of all of the actors, mm-hmm. particularly Christina Raines, who I adore. Sure. Adore, adore, and um, she's great in everything. She's such an underrated actress, and um, and it was it was fun, you know. But I kind of like that, even though the story is much like the last story in that it's almost like a throwaway. It's like what I don't know, <laughs> but but the mystery of who killed is her name Linda Hill, the lady at the beginning. Linda Hill, is, yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it's um. It, uh, it it yeah it gives you uh, there's a little misdirection and it goes in one way and and it's it's actually unlike say Spanish Gambit where you're kind of confused this the this is actual proper like mystery misdirection in this one yeah like you think it's going in one direction and then suddenly you're like okay it's meant to go over here and yeah I think I think it's I think it's a pretty um, I, I think it's a it's a pretty good episode of the show. I, I wouldn't I don't know if I'd place it in the absolute top tier, but um uh but I, I quite like it. Um I like the fact that um the part of the part of the thing is that um they try to get into their hotel 
in Barcelona. Oh, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. That was the last previous one. Oh. In Rio. Um, and they meet up with the guy who doesn't let them in the hotel. And this yes. could be a Glenn it's, A. Larson thing is, please. Is Luis. Yes. From Sesame Street. <laughs> Get out of town. It was So excited. I have seen him in other things. Like, I think he's in a Quincy or something. But, like... Every time I see him, I'm just like, it's Luis from Sesame. It's like, yes. that's all he is to me. He doesn't, he's not a person outside of that character. I mean, that, but that's the thing. Like, Sesame Street, there were five-hour-long episodes a week, so they were busting their butts, uh, you know, to, yeah. to get this stuff done. And, I mean, I always think with, with Glenn A. Larson, it's like um, uh, uh, the uh, September 79, the, the uh, two-part premiere of BJ and the Bear Season 2, BJ and the Seven Lady Truckers. Um, one of the Seven Lady Truckers is Maria from oh. Sesame Street. It's like, what the heck, Maria? And it's like, I love the fact that Glenn, well, he was much older, but I like the fact that maybe someone in his family was like, Daddy, can you put Sesame yeah. Street people in there? Well, Well, yeah, his son sure. was the co-producer, so it's possible that Chris Larson possible. was only eight when he was doing Masquerade. Possible. It's possible. There's every possibility. We don't research as well as we should sometimes, <laughs> so that could, could be a possibility. But, um, yeah, it was great to see. And, and sort of the thing is, um, they go to the American Embassy, which is where they're trying to go to, to investigate everyone, and they end up camping out in the lawn. And Tab Hunter is not, no, 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 no. But Christina Raines is like, let them stay. And they set up these tents, and they're there, and it looks very much like a homeless encampment with a giant bus and Eve Plum with a bad haircut. But it's okay. Mm-hmm. And um, so so what's... Um, uh, I, I did, did I did I cover the I think I covered most of the plot the basics the basics so so one of the things that happens is um, um, which is fun is that uh, the dentist uh, they uh, the head Soviet guy the the head Nazi from Top Secret gets a bad toothache and goes into a dentist's office and and our dentist is there Mr Macy. And he does the root root canal, or he does a filling or something, but he puts a little, like, bug in his tooth. So they're able to monitor wherever the Soviets are going. And, which mainly seems to involve the um, the cab driver getting in car chases. Well, but, here's my question. What was the Soviets' involvement exactly with Linda Hill? I don't... I don't think they were where they weren't involved with Linda Hill. They were involved with um, the mole. Oh, that's right. right. And okay. Linda Hill found out. And that's I got to right. tell you, I got to tell you my Linda Hill story. I know what you're thinking, Dan. You have a Linda Hill story. You, <laughs> you just watched this episode three days ago. You have a Linda Hill story. Sit back, folks. Sit back and relax. But but yeah, I think I think it's um because they're they're involved with the mole and there's all sorts of stuff going on and things like that and. I do like. Can can I say? Um, and so, I, th- Wait, I think. What's your Linda Hill story? Oh, uh, I'll, I'll tell that in a couple minutes. Oh, uh, because oh okay. It's well, not... it's, it's very suspenseful and slightly confusing, just like a Rob Zombie movie. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or the previous episode of Masquerade. Now, do you what? What did you think about the fact that this episode, which was the last one we would have seen on American television, at the t- American television? I think the other one showed up on TV Land, like. 20 years oh. later. So, um, uh, it ends with more or less a masquerade. Oh, wow. That's a deep cut. I like that. I didn't even put those two together. 
that's like a layer upon layer because they're already masquerading, right? Yes. They want an invitation for a short vacation because that's the only line I can remember. <laughs> and and they come and they pretend. So, so one thing about Masquerade, I will give it props for, is that its its title is exactly what it is. So we were talking about, I think in the last episode, I talked about how being a spy is just play acting. Yes. But they called the show Masquerade, right? So like... They're not. They're telling you exactly what you're going to get. You're going to get play acting. Yes. You get to put people Very, who are going to sort of camp, yeah, kind yeah, of, yeah, kind of thing. And so like, so like the word itself already is the title is already like being more upfront than the Rockford Files was, right? Mm-hmm. Or or Police Woman or whatever. Sure, yeah, yeah. And so like, not that those aren't great shows, but everything was about like going undercover. Meant like, so there's this episode of Police Woman where she has to go to prison, mm. and. She first of all though she has to get hooked up with like these crazy people and who are like into horse racing and they're doing something I can't there's drugs or something and so <laughs> she's like oh I wish I could remember the um, Earl Holloman's name but um, Angie Dickinson's character is Ibram Doe oh and his name is um, Cajun something like they like they make up these names and like they're from you know New Orleans or whatever and they have no accents because Earl Holloman's from like Brooklyn, right? Yeah, I think, yeah. There's no way yeah. you would mistake him as being Cajun, but his name was like Cajun Lamont. It was Cajun Lamont <laughs> and Eve Rondeau. But like, that's why I love the show, though, because them going undercover means like play acting. I don't know how else to word it. Like they mm. have to, they have to just take on different characters and then like, but is that really undercover work in real life? I don't think so. But all the TV shows did that, and so Masquerade is letting you know right at the front of the gate. Before you even yeah, go into the playing. thing, yes, yes, yeah, and so already it's got like it's giving you it's very it's very honest about what the show is, and so to have it end on a masquerade is really neat because it's already kind of like because mm-hmm. the whole show is about play acting and masquerading is about like taking these sort of ideas and characters and things that you want to sort of either maybe you fetishize you've idealized or yes. things you want to embody for a while and then becoming that when actually masquerade the show itself which we talked about, I think, in the first episode, was about normal Americans taking on government roles as part of a patriotic movement and how that was a big thing in the 80s, uh, sort of uh, spearheaded by Scarecrow Mrs. King, Mm -hmm. and how, um, I don't even know where I'm going with this, but how basically... um, Keep going, I'm here, I'm here. (laughs) With the basically, where did I go? I had a whole idea in my head, and then I said Scarecrow Mrs. King. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, uh, yeah, she, no, uh, uh, it was uh, uh, American people uh, joining in, doing stuff, and and that's and did, did yeah, were you going to say that it kind of loses that as it goes or, or no no or, no it it, it encompasses yeah. that so there's okay. It, okay so what I'm saying is is that when you're in a masquerade you, like and there's a really funny moment with um, lavender in a skeleton costume because he's hard to take yes. seriously at that point but like with like they're wearing all these crazy fun costumes they're embodying as cosplay or whatever their version of cosplay mm-hmm. in like 1983. But, like, the Americans on the show as their characters were also doing cosplay in these sort of idealized roles of helping their government. So it was all so masquerading is all about an idealization of another form of yourself, right? Yeah. And so that's kind of what this what the show is doing anyway. And then to have it end with that sort of more literal translation of it is actually really cool. Yeah, now that you said I, it. And if that made sense, thank you. I, I, I appreciate you hanging with me. I'm not sure it did. I, th- I, th- I think it did make sense because the moment, I, 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 having known that this was the last one that folks would have seen, and it ended in a masquerade, was almost like they could have called it the final episode of Masquerade because it ends with a masquerade. Yeah. And, 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 and Lavender is Uncle Sam. That's right. I love yeah. that. You know, and, 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 um, and, and the... Um, 
and there is uh, there's a the yeah the one of the Russian Soviets is a skeleton. He has sort of the like um, not quite the um, Halloween three, but sort of the Halloween three skeleton mask on. Yes, yes. And then there is someone who is wearing an old hag mask, which I want to say is from Slaughter High, but I need I didn't actually look up where that mask is from. You know, oh, it, it reminded me a little bit of the, it's not the same mask, but it made me think of uh, curtains. I think. Oh, Kurt, okay, yes, okay. I was trying to think because that mask is very specifically, I was like, that's, someone in a slasher film is wearing that mask. Right now. And I, and I wanted to say, no, no, it's a jester thing that that yes. he puts on Yes, but he does have spirit. kind of a, it has a haggy kind of face to it. Haggy, it has a hag face to it, and Curtains is the other big, big hag face. But uh, I love the fact that it ends in a, a, a regardless of, and I, I, I quite enjoyed the episode. Regardless of what you think of it, the fact that it ends in a masquerade is like them sort of saying, "Hey, look at this! Look, hey, it's masquerade." Hey, you no, know, hey, exa- <laughs> it's it's very um, it is sort of I guess camp in the proper sort of sense where it's it's um, like you said with secret agent stuff. It's like it's play acting. It's like James Bond. You know, it's like you go to you go to James Bond in the '60s. Well, all most James Bond. You know, it's like it's it's silly, and I mean it's goofy. I mean it's it's you know you can treat it as seriously as you like, but it's it's fun, right. and and so that's sort of the, this camp element that that I I really like that they did that. The moment they're at the masquerade and the um the um the the head guy from Top Secret shows up. I think he's a sheik, and his second in command is the skeleton, and Kirstie Alley is like a Oh gosh, like a belly dancer, or harem dancer, or something. Oh yeah, like she looked that. great. She had this fake hair. Yes, she looked really good. And and yeah, Greg, her hair Greg, went all the way down her back, and it was so beautiful. Yeah, and Greg Evigan is like a gladiator, um, sort of thing. Whatever, right? Danny. Whatever, Danny. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. I was like, mm, I don't know. I would have. You know what? I, I. You know what? I would have had him come out dressed as a trucker. I would have had him come out dressed as Paul Reiser. You, you you can you can yes. That was <laughs> yeah, a my two dads reference. My two dads, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I was gonna say I I would have I would have loved to see him as a trucker, but I uh, yeah, but um, it's uh, uh <laughs> I don't know. We went off in a space there. Did we even I, talk about the story itself? Like we did. I covered the basics of it that they're trying to hunt down the mole, and there are three people, and um. I, I don't I don't I, I don't know I mean, I mean I figure since this is the last one um, I oh I actually think we already gave away who the why did we tell you who the killer is because like so what happens is is like Linda Hill gets killed at the very beginning and a very iconic character and she goes fallen off the cliff and then they're coming in um, and they're like you know uh, she found out that there was a mole but there's these three people that it could be like you said. But it's it's interesting. Well, they said it was only two people, mm-hmm. Tab Hunter, and then this attaché, commercial attaché guy. Is that who it was? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. And yeah. and um and it's gonna be one of those two, and it can't possibly be Tab Hunter because he's Tab Hunter. Yes. So it must be the commercial attaché guy. But they but all all fingers point to Tab Hunter, and there's this great scene. It's kind of the giveaway for who the mole is because they're chasing Tab Hunter down, Lavender and um, Christina Rain's character. And then 
It didn't look like Tab Hunter was going to hurt anybody to me, but he gets shot. He was trying to run away, yeah. He was... Yeah, it didn't feel like he was turning to shoot anybody, but in, but Christina Rain's character shoots him. And then that's when the red flags start to go up, right? And you're like, oh, Lavender, because he's been courting her. Yes, why right? not, I say. There's a whole episode, well, it's Christina Rain's, right? Sure, And yeah. so, like, oh, God, I love her. And uh, she's so good in The Sentinel, and she's good in Yeah, everything. I was going to, yeah, that was, I was thinking of The Sentinel. I haven't watched that in ages. I need to watch it again. I just watched it last year when I did the Scream for Help commentary, because it's by Michael Winner. Oh, we were sure, watching of course. All the you got movies, you know. <laughs> it's a winner. Michael um, Winner sees that he's the nuttiest. <laughs> yeah, but that's a really creepy, good movie. And um, yeah, Deborah Raffin's in it, and it's got a great cast. Um, but anyway... Um, so, so anyway, he's, I don't know that he's really suspicious of her at this point, but I think he must be, but he plays out the rest of the episode like he's not sure who it is, but then, you know, he's not falling in love with her, but he's definitely in like with her. And so at the end, there's this big chase and... They do it really well, I, th- I think. I yeah, think but she gets kind of unveiled. And at this point, Lavender has changed into the skeleton outfit, which yes. the other guy has been wearing. And it's hilarious because he takes off the hag mask like there's any surprise that it's going to be Christina Reigns. And he's like, you're the mole. But he's standing there in the skeleton outfit, and he's got his hands on his hips. He and looks like a skeleton. He looks like a slim good body or something like hilarious. that. He looks like, like a skeleton. He- he- <laughs> I don't and know how he does it. And he's very upset at her. But he's got his hands on his hips, and it looks like just these bones. And he's just like, I can't believe I was going to love you, or whatever he says to her. And you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. like, and But he's standing there looking like a skeleton with, with Rod Taylor's head on top of it. <laughs> yes, it, and, it, it, it really looks like, like it could be like a Warner Brothers cartoon or something like that, where yeah. skeletons are dancing as music is playing. Yeah, it's so weird, and, and it takes away some of the drama of that. But like, but like all, while all this is happening... It, Stephen Keats' character is kind of like hanging out at this. So they've all had to camp outside, which is ridiculous. But And um, that girl played by Eve Plum was like the drifter. She's talking about all these stories, and he's talking about, like, she's this privileged kid, and she doesn't know what she's doing. And mm-hmm. she's like, what were you like when you were 18, when she's clearly 28? And he's like, well, I thought I'd go to space and stuff. But that never happened. And she's like, it still could. And so she, she fills his head with all this idealism and mm. wonder. And so at the end, he secretly gives her $1,000 and then basically uses the money when he takes off with her. Like, it's weird. Like, he gives yes. her the money secretly. And then he's like, we're going to go to Mexico and look at some pyramids. And I'm like, she's going to pay for your ride. <laughs> <laughs> yes. you know? I don't understand, but I thought it was kind of sweet, but it was so out of left field. So like where the bromance in the last episode came from somewhere organic, they -hmm. just kind of get thrown together. And I'm thinking to myself while I'm watching it, Stephen Keats, I know she's 28, but she's playing an 18 year old and you're not 18. You are not. You're like 38. Yes. And it's freaking me out. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I I almost felt like when when Eve Plum's character shows up and she starts talking, I thought if she's either going to become integral to the plot, or she wandered in from a TV movie from about ten years ago. Dawn Porter, so, teenage runaway. That's possibly <laughs> possibly. Yeah, there there was some sort of time slippage, and she wound up in here. But they did her hair. I I, I when I say they did her hair. I say did in the in the in the most the roughest 
possible in way. an early early eightieth melody way. Yes, yes. Oh, um, yeah. No, it's, but it it's... wasn't any worse than the one with the woman that was the dancer that did like the weird. Oh yeah, rap. she was rough too. Yeah, and her yeah, hair. Was she was cute, but her she hair was off. Not not working for me. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's. I. I think the thing is, I don't. Um, it, to, to me, I see Eve Plum sort of um, uh, late sixties, early seventies, and then again, sort of late eighties ish. I, I never, I, I haven't really seen the Brady Girls get married. Is that like eighty two? Oh, yeah, it's so good. Uh, so, so, so when I see Eve Plum, she has hair that is um, workable in my mind. This was just like they, they like took like um, I don't know, like um. A scouring pad and and dyed it blonde and dropped it on her head from a, a, a like ten feet and just said there's your hair and that was it and it was like no <laughs> Eve no don't no I don't I don't mm, I don't care I, how good those mountains look yeah you know what but but I'll tell you what the hair fit because it, it, it was short and she was a drifter and I could see her having no fuss hair. Mm. It was a mullety, yes, yes, but yes, yes. but you could see the kind of the idea that it was supposed to sort of like she didn't really like stay in hotels and things, and so like I for me the hair fit the character, and I bet when Eve Plum was got the role, she was like okay okay okay, Stanislavski, I have to be eighteen and I have to be a drifter, yes. and my hair what kind of hair would I have? Because she probably had a really long blonde luxurious hair like she had on the yes. British, and she's like what do I, what what would this character what would she be like? She would have short hair because she wouldn't want to have time. She wouldn't really have to take the time to take care of it. And then I'd have to be 18. So remember to talk like an 18-year-old. Like, oh, I went to the mountains and they were so pretty. So beautiful. Just like in National Geographic. And I, talk, I telegraphed my parents, but I never hear back. So, so yeah, so I, I think we'll take a, um, yeah, like a muskrat and we'll run it over. <laughs> And then we'll dye it and put it on my head. Stanislavski, Stanislavski, Strasburg. We're doing the Strasburg. I can't think of all the names of all the actors. Stanislavski, Strasburg. I think of Susan Strasburg whenever I do that. But it's the Strasburg method, yeah. Definitely, and I'm with her. Yes. No. I. No. I. I don't know, folks. Please. You. You know. You're listening to me, thinking, Dan. Why? Why are you going after Eve Plum? No. 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 No, no, I, I love Eve Plum to, to pieces. If I if I walked out of the front door of my house right now and I saw Eve Plum, I would say hello and offer her a, a drink or something. You could have uh, possibly uh, seen her because they recently renovated the Brady house, right? And that's yes, totally they near did. you. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Yeah. Um, but no, I'm not. Uh, I'm just uh, the the hair. You know, there. I love '80s hair. You you guys know how I feel like say about Lisa Loring and Iced. You know, you know I love the big hair. I enjoy the hair. But there are certain haircuts that um, I think should be. You know, I I was never a big fan of the, like the '50s, the big beehive haircut, no. the big high. No, no, I don't. I don't know. Um, or uh, the movie Skydivers, the Coleman Francis film. The lead actress in that has like a helmet on her head of hair. Uh, no, 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 no. I like Don't... Charlie's Angels hair. Yes, yes. That's my era. I, yeah, okay, yeah. I like, I like, I like, I like, I like hair that looks like hair rather than like <laughs> helmets or animals or things like that. So that's like you know, like... hands, you know, like we cut, then you cut their hair. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. 
yes, yes, he did the crazy <laughs> hair. But that 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 was a fairy tale. So that oh is okay, I think. <laughs> well, we're I so much about you, Dan. I I haven't seen actually I haven't seen Edward Scissorhands in ages. I I, I have either. I, I I saw it opening weekend with my girlfriend, yep. my high school sweetheart, and I came out of the the um the the theater and I was like and and. We were all like, "Wow, that was really good. I love that." And I said something like, "Wow, Winona Ryder is beautiful." My girlfriend did not talk to me for about three days. Why? And, and because she was like, "What?" And I was like, "No, it's, it's, I'm not. I'm not. It, it, that doesn't. When I say that, that doesn't mean Winona Ryder and I have access to one another." <laughs> she she just got very angry at me that uh, I didn't go overboard. I was just like, "I thought she was beautiful in that," and she is. You know. You know? I saw that movie. I saw that movie opening weekend. I saw it on Friday night, and mm-hmm. I'm not actually just truth be told. I'm not a Tim Burton fan. This is the only movie of his I actually really like. Oh, and okay. and I love it. It's easily my top ten favorite films of all time. But I haven't seen it in like 20 years because it's too hard to watch. But yes. I saw it, and it just I just bawled my eyes out in the theater. I thought it was so beautiful. And I came home, and I was like 21 or something. And my dad said, "What did you think of the movie?" And I said. Um, it's one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. It's so sad. And he said, you say that about every movie. Because I was watching everything at the time. And I was really into French movies, you know, and those are heart-wrenching, you know. And yeah. uh, and then I just started crying and I couldn't stop. And my dad was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Because he thought he made me cry like he thought I was insulted. But I was still crying from the film. Sure, and the movie, then yeah. and then the movie came out and on video. And my dad was like, okay, let's watch it. So I rented it. And he cried <laughs> when it was over. I cried for two days after that movie, like easily. He cried, and then my mom wanted to see it oh, separately. No. Oh, and then no. I watched it with her. She cried. And I'm like, I'm telling you, this movie will destroy you. Not but like, which is why I don't watch it very often. But it, it's it's one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. And and I think the reason why, and we're totally getting off tangent, but the reason why it's so good, the reason why I don't like Tim Burton movies is because I think they're hyper-stylized and I think that they don't have emotion in them. I think visually they're really cool, but mm-hmm. they're kind of stunted for me emotionally. But I think he's Edward Scissorhands. So yes. that movie is oh, so personal yeah. Yeah. that yeah. you can't help but feel like the heart and the humanness of it to me. And so like, and I'm not saying he doesn't have heart in his other films, but for me they're kind of cold. I know most people don't mm-hmm. feel that way, but I do. But what Edward Scissorhands to me is like reading his diary, you know, and it's so moving, the experience really? of it. You know, it's beautiful. So anyway, he cut people's hair. And he yes. possibly cut each plum's hair before she did this episode. Yes. <laughs> and I, I will say that my... And my... she brought the ambrosia. Do you remember the ambrosia in the movie? Yes. Yeah. yeah I do. <laughs> I do. Yep. 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 Uh, I, uh, my two favorite Tim Burton films are um, Ed Wood, um, which I saw in a, in a screening, a test screening, which had a different ending. Um, and Batman Returns, which is one of my favorite Christmas movies. I, I think um, uh, I love The Elephant Man, and I've said this about 14 times before, so forgive me, folks, but I think Batman Returns with the Penguin is the opposite of The Elephant Man, where The Elephant Man, the elephant man is a person who was born deformed and, uh, and lived a horrible life, who just wants to be treated nicely and, and have a good life. And, and the, the moment he does, he, he, I don't know if this is a spoiler, he passes on. Whereas the penguin is someone who's treated the exact same way and wants to kill everybody, which I really like. 
I think I think uh, and well, I think ba- I, I saw I I I saw Batman Returns the the midnight screening um, the Thursday night right before it came out and um, I it's still I st- I haven't watched it this year I can't find my freaking disc. I've misplaced a lot of things this this Christmas season, which is when we're recording this. I know you're hearing this in early February, but forget it, folks. But um, but yeah, that's those are my favorites. But I do love Edward Scissorhands and um, Beetlejuice and also Pee Wee. Big event. I don't like I don't like any of them. Really. Yeah, none of them. I don't like Pee Wee's Playhouse or whatever it's called. Pee Wee's Big Adventure is at it. Mm-hmm. I don't this. I don't like Beetlejuice. I don't mm-hmm. like Edward. I I don't like. Really? I think that's it for what I've seen of his. I do want to see Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Sure. Who, yeah. I just I just saw that like a, a few weeks ago. I, it's pretty 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 good. I didn't like Batman either. Oh. I know. I'm sorry. I know it's Man, all controversial when I say that, and I'm not saying. And I understand people love him, and I get it. But when I watch his movies. It just feels like watching. This is turning into another podcast. It just feels <laughs> like watching a really interesting looking thing, but but with a hole in its heart. And I don't know why that is for me, but they leave me very cold. Like I don't have any emotion towards them one way or the other. And and they're they're sort of there. They exist. Okay. Yeah. That's it. But Edward Scissorhands is so beautiful and so touching. Mm-hmm. But that's just because I feel like it was him telling his own story, right? Okay. And and I can feel that one. Plus, who doesn't feel like Edward Scissorhands? Yes. At some point, you know, everybody can relate to that character, and well, so it just works for me. I, but none of his other films ever have. Okay. Yeah. I. I. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan, but like Ed Wood, I love. You know, I love Ed Wood, and I. I think. I think maybe it's, it's possibly more the screenplay and the uh, actors. Sure. Than the direction in that, and Batman Returns. I love Batman Returns because I. I, I think it's. Um, someone who shouldn't have directed a superhero movie, now being told, "Hey, you directed a blockbuster. Do whatever you want," and that to me is what Batman Returns is. It's this crazy. To me, it's as personal as Edward Scissorhands, but it's just Batman, Catwoman, and and the Penguin. And um, but I I can understand completely if you watch it and you go, Dan, get in that car and go away drive far away i understand so no i like so. I, you know i i'm not gonna i don't want to discount anybody's love of tim burton because other people you know because they love his movies i just don't mm-hmm. get it but that doesn't mean that i'm right and they're wrong or no. vice versa it just means it's not his he's a filmmaker that doesn't really have any effect yeah. on me at the, at the end of the day i'm more sort of like filmmakers i'm more of a wes anderson guy i think than um also than i didn't like mars attacks I I never saw Mars Attacks. Yeah, it not... came out when when I was working at uh, the Bookstar in Studio City, and I never went to see it. I felt bad. Yeah, not a fan. Okay, so but let's I do get love back the way to... he cuts. I do love the way Richard Rand's cuts hair, and I think he did it. He plums hair. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's he, the whole point he, of this. I, I I like the fact that with with her hair, he may have gone uh, lower. Rather than higher, you you can't yeah, always go right. high. Sometimes you go low. Yeah. So, what else do we have? What else do we have on this episode? What else do you have? Oh no no, that was I. Uh, you know I I think um back with a, uh, Joni loves Chachi when we were talking Joni loves Chachi we were trying to pitch the um, backdoor pilot for the uh, Amanda and Mitts oh. podcast <laughs> and and I'm so that's telling a, stories. 
that's that's Amanda telling you about Tim Burton. Um, I um, yeah, I, I'll be honest. I don't think I've seen a Tim Burton movie since. Oh, it's been a long, long. Big Fish. People tell me I should see Big Fish. Oh, I didn't know he did that. Yeah, um, but I haven't. Um, the the only ones I watch regularly are Batman Returns and Ed Wood, um, just because I adore the Ed Wood story and Batman Returns. I think is beautiful. Um, and so so I don't. Um, yeah, so um, what, oh, what else I do you have in this? Oh, I like Frankenweenie. Oh, Frankenweenie is a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah I did like yeah. that. Okay, so anyway. <laughs> so let me so let me let me let me look at my notes. What what else do you have on this one? I have Eve Plum circled with an exclamation point, but I think we've already discussed. I think we have. Um, uh, just another love letter to Stephen Keats. So please. Because he was incredible and. The 80s, I don't really know why he's famous, I guess, for Death Wish, but he's just that guy. He, he is very much to me. Do you know who Christopher Conley is? He started Manhattan Baby, and he was on Pain Place. He was on Pain Place, and he was very frustrated with his career because uh, Ryan O'Neill and Mia Farrow came off Pain Place, and then they went and became superstars, still super famous today. And when they did the reunion movie for Pain Place in the 70s, Christopher Conley did it, but he did an interview where he said he was kind of disappointed with his career. Is that the, is that the murder? Yeah, yes, yes. He was kind of disappointed with his career, and and he was he kind of didn't want to have to go back to Peyton Place, but he did it. It's work. And he was one of those guys that I saw in a lot of things that I always liked because he was different, and he was very appealing to me as a man, you know. But he was also like not a typical Hollywood kind of good looking. He wasn't Ryan O'Neill, but he was gorgeous mm-hmm. in his. And sure. Stephen Keats is gorgeous in his own way. There's something about Stephen yeah. Keats that's very appealing to me. Yes, there, there yeah. is. There's, there's some. He's, he's, he might punch you in the face, but you'll, um, you'll like it. Yeah, there's just something about him that I really like, and, and so whenever he comes on TV, I'm always just drawn to him. And they both died very young, you know, Christopher oh. Conley and Stephen Keats, and maybe that's why I always associate them together. Christopher Conley died of cancer at, at like 48, and Stephen Keats committed suicide in the early nineties. Oh. Yeah. And and so when I see Stephen Keats or Christopher Conley, I always get this sort of ping in my heart for them, too. So it's really hard for me to look objectively at them as actors, but they are tremendous actors. They were, they were both criminally underrated, I think, throughout their entire careers, mm-hmm. and both deserve reassessment. And Stephen Keats maybe a little more, because I think maybe he had a more interesting career. I'm not sure of that, though. And um, so anyway, he's always so good. And even in something like this, where he's this sort of gumshoey guy, and I don't even think he's trying that hard in this episode, to be perfectly honest with you, except for that part where at the beginning when they're trying to get into the hotel situation and they're in the, um, um, what's the word called? Where are they? The consulate? He's pretending like he's like a cement salesman or something like that. (laughs) And so he can bug the office, but so he's distracting them by playing this character's play acting. And um, and he, he there he's really like on fire, but the, the rest of the episode he's kind of just sort of in low gear. But he doesn't need to be in high gear because he's Stephen Keats. He just doesn't need to do anything for me to be good. And and he accomplishes it in this episode. So even though the romance between him and Eve Plum is never really fully realized and kind of comes out of left field, it still works for me because he's Stephen Keats. And he just uh, he just has to exist. Yes. To to care to get make me believe whatever he's saying. You know what I, I mean? Yeah, I I could argue there. Um, if if uh, Eve Plum is uh, interested in you, 
then I I applaud you. Sir. <laughs> yes. So so he went. And, he and, looked at some pyramids with her. You know. Yes. Oh, oh, I would love to have seen. I mean, they they would have their sort of like in search of aliens kind of show. Yeah. Go look at uh, pyramids in Mexico and the 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 um the Nazca lines and things like that, and they go in search of for us. You know, it would be awesome. Yeah, I um. Yeah, no, no. He's. Uh, I, I like the, the opening scene with him where he, it, it's like he's showing a client some photos of the client's wife with another man. That's right. And he, the client is like, "Oh, these are terrible. What are you showing? This is awful." And he storms out. And he, I thought, I think that's the wrong reaction to what you have paid this guy for. Yeah, I think he said that, that, that too. That, yeah, yeah, I, I think I think he says that, and maybe Greg Evigan kind of, um, kind of um, uh, intimates that when he comes in, like, okay, so someone hired you to take pictures of his wife, who he thought was having an affair. You took the pictures, and he declaimed you for um, taking these pictures of your wife having an affair. And it's it's a it's a bit of a weird moment. You're like, oh, I don't want this guy to be a sad sack because I like him, and he, he's not quite. He's 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 hard boiled a bit, and you know he was in the army and he did his thing, and he 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 does put his um bug in the room a little better than Kirstie Alley does in that one episode, you know, where they're gambling. Yes. And she kind of like oh, puts it's so in the obvious bug. that she's bugging it. Yes. 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 He Wait, he does here's a little thing, bit better. He, they, they tell, they say, well, we need you because you have surveillance that can't be detected. But then they detect the cavity filler with the surveillance equipment inside the guy's mouth. And you're like, I thought he could override all that stuff. I, I, I think that the, the one the one thing with that scene is that um, the, this so so the um, the the head Soviet guy is talking with his boss on the phone. He's like, I don't know what's going on. They 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 figured out what was happening. And and. His his sidekick or his second in command is going around with the, like a bug detector, and it's actually a pretty funny scene I think, where um. Oh, it's a good scene, said, but I'm just I can't yeah. understand how he got detected. Yes, I, I guess I, I guess eventually the um the uh, technology kind of um uh, uh, goes to another level or something like that. But I I think th- as I was watching that scene, I think oh I get what they're doing here. This is a little comedy scene. Where he's like suddenly like, oh, your mouth is the source of the bug, and so I get that. But um, but but I yeah, I kind of wish he had um, he had uh, made it all the way through with his tooth thing. His thing. His thing. Uh, so what else? What else do you have on this one? I think that's it. I I love Stephen Keats and. <laughs> It was a very fun episode. I love Christina Raines. It had all the right actors to have a hunter. And I think they all did a good job. And I like the mystery. And you're right. I don't know if it's in the top three or whatever. And I don't know what the top three would be minus the ninja episode. But like, um, <laughs> but it's, it's really, it's really a very enjoyable episode for me. And it's very linear, I think, even though I don't know what the, the mole thing is like kind of a side story, but like the whole mystery with who killed Linda Hill is really pretty good. Yes. Yes. So I will. Do you have any uh, a cast stuff on this one? I don't. I already did my Stephen Keats. Oh right. So I will do uh, my Linda Hill story. If if. Or, oh yes, please. 
Okay, so this this is not going to um this is not going to be a big story, but this is um uh, when I was in uh, third grade uh, back in oh good gravy around the time of the fourth season of Dallas. Do you guys remember that? Um, when was that? 1981, 1982. It was right after Who Shot Jr. And um, and uh, we got a new. Um, uh, uh, there was a, I was at St. Margaret Mary's school, Catholic school, and a new student showed up named John Josh. And John was, um, John was a good guy. Um, we went to high school together and in high school, he suddenly became a big musical theater guy, which is awesome. He was like, he played Tevier and Fiddler on the Roof and, and a lot of other things. And, but, but during uh, grade school, he was kind of the kid who used to have go, he would have, he would spaz out and he would hit his head against a table or something like that. Or he'd, he'd just be kind of a nutty kid, but, okay. but we, we, we would occasionally hang out and, um, uh, he was, he, he, he was fun when he wasn't spazzing. He, um, he lived, he, his, his dad ran a huge like garden shop in Arundacoit, New York, called Josh Gardens, which was a huge like garden store. This was the early 80s that everyone would go to. And he lived in a house that was like five times the size of the house I grew up in. Now, my dad was a firefighter. I don't know. I guess the way America works, someone who runs a garden store has a house five times larger than someone who saves people's lives every day. But that's just the way it works. That's America, folks. Welcome. Um, that's and capitalism. So that's capitalism. Enjoy. Um, and my dad died doing that. So so it's it's fun. Oh. But um, ah, you know, it's that's a long not time fun. Ago. That is not fun. <laughs> that's a long time ago. But um, uh, but but so I was in I was in in John's house and I met his mom. And uh, when you watched uh, uh, in the early 80s, there were a lot of TV, um, and this is going to give it away immediately, there were a lot of um, uh, commercials for the biggest like uh, electronics company, like the, the ones who had the early VCRs and the big screen t- and the SpectraVision that was Hill TV. And Hill TV, oh. all the Hill TV commercials were hosted by Linda Hill who was John Josh's mom. And so I knew Linda Hill. And she was a very nice lady. And we I used to hang out at John's uh, Josh his house um because it was a big house we used to have fun there but it was like and we used to um like um the hill tv like the it, it was not um like her family started it and like her mom and dad like lived in like literally a mansion in downtown Rochester that was like a mansion that was like on a property with another house and so like if you went in the backyard there was a pool and there was all this space and there was another building another house but if you went into their main house and you went in the basement you could go underneath the houses and come up into their house so that was like how huge all this was wow and 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 so linda hill to me the moment i saw linda hill being pushed off a cliff in this masquerade i thought no linda hill hosted all those commercials 
that I saw for Hill TV. <laughs> she was trying. She was trying to sell me like the the projection TVs. You know, where they in the early '80s, where they had like the projection, like the movie screen, and they had like the projection that would shine out like like a, a movie theater. They were trying to sell me uh, VCRs for four hundred dollars, stuff like that. So that to <laughs> me, to me, circa nineteen eighty three, eighty four. That was when I was hanging out with John Josh, and I was seeing his mom, Linda Hill, and his dad, who I think was also named John Josh, um, who ran the Josh Gardens, and it was like, and they, they were a fun family. I mean, that was the closest I've ever gotten to getting swank in my life, and that was fun, and I was 10 or 11, so, you know, that. but that's Linda Hill, and that's a different Linda Hill from the one that got pushed off the hill as a mannequin in this Masquerade episode, so... <laughs> So that's my that's so my Linda Hill. for you to see that though. Yes, sure. yes, of course. It was like the moment. It's like Linda Hill. When I was like, wait a minute, where do I know that? Oh my gosh! So that is, I don't even remember. Spine down to Rio, going down to Rio. Oh, who wait, does that song? That's right. Peter Allen, and just so you know, Peter Allen was married to Liza Minnelli what? for a while. But he was gay, and I think that's, and I feel like they made a play about him, oh. actually, The Man from Oz or something like that. And um, he um, he was gay, but he was married to Liza Minnelli for a while, and it oh. turns out that uh, his partner that he ended up hooking up with um, after hooking up with, that's not so horrible, that he fell <laughs> in love with after um, his divorce from Liza Minnelli um, was named Gregory Connell. And he was a fashion model from Texas who designed sound and lighting for Allen shows, and he sang backup on I Go to Rio. Whoa. So just a little piece of trivia about Peter Allen and his partner, um, that they were quite the duo, it sounds like. That's because the song is famous. Yeah, the song is all over the episode. It's sort of one of those things like... um, you think eh, going down to Rio, which is the kind of thing like if I was living in Rio, I would need to listen to a song that affirmed that I was in the place I was in. So hey, going down to Rio, I love it. It's so much fun. Yeah, so there's there's no information on Wikipedia on who covered it, but it has been covered by Peggy Lee and oh. Pablo Cruz at some point. But there's nothing on here that says it was also covered in Masquerade, which is kind of uh, upsetting to me. Oh, that's too bad. And I will say, um, if we want to do some six degrees of separation, uh, you know me, and at the last Doctor Who convention in L.A., I met Katie Manning, who played Joe Grant in the early 70s in Doctor Who. Uh, she is a good friend of Liza Minnelli. Boom! So, oh. so we're right there. So there's six degrees. Let's do it. Uh, what else? Do you have anything else on this one? I think I'm dry. I think that's it. I think we went yeah. to Rio. <laughs> I think we went to Rio. We're coming back. We did that thing and then now we're back. So, Amanda, uh, thank you again. We've got one episode left and it's the episode that didn't air on anything, which is, oh boy, what's going to happen? What is it? Was it too something or other to show on TV? We'll find out. But, Amanda, what, uh, what are you up to? What's going on? Ooh. Well, I guess uh, the only thing I can talk about that's been announced is that I did the liner notes for Edge of the Axe, which is coming out through Arrow, and that the History Continues did the commentary for that, and I am super excited about it, um, and I think that's it from things that are uh, public knowledge. 
Public knowledge, eh? <laughs> I'm thinking of that. I'm thinking of that scene from. Man. <laughs> I'm sorry. All of a sudden, you remember that scene of Madman when um, uh, the girl Dawn of the Dead is fighting with TP, and her yes. friend, the dark-haired girl, says, "You're making this public knowledge." Yes. I just yeah. read the words. Yeah, it came into my head. So sorry. <laughs> uh, so. Um... <sighs> Thank you, thank you so much for joining me on this um, <laughs> masquerade. Masquerade, it's a hell of a time, folks. And I know uh, we've gone off on some tangents, but um, if if I know this is episode, what the hell episode is this? Eighty two, I think. Um, if you were back with us at episode one, two, three, whenever we're talking, Joni loves Shachi. You know we like to talk. So yes, yeah. So. Thank you so much, Amanda. We have one episode left, Flashpoint, and that will wrap up um, another show for this. Yeah, would you like to say goodbye? Goodbye. Yay! She said goodbye. Yay! And, let, and let's uh, let's wrap this up, folks. Thank you so much. And we will. Uh, ne- uh, I don't know what we're going on to next here. Um, it's a whole new world. Um, but uh, l- uh, listen to this. my devotion, my undying gratitude. Mm-hmm. And uh, the pre-pub cereal rice. Now you're talking. What do you got, Tom? Man loses fingertip in canning accident. Oh, that's boring, Tom. That's very boring. Think of this. Dismembered gangster found in fruit salad. Huh? I know, he wasn't a criminal. Get somebody to say he was. Uh, maybe he's got an ex-wife. Now, you listen to him. He's a very bright man. You can learn from this man. This man has a long line of quickie sequels. This man sells books. Not enough books, maybe, but what the hell is that? He's juggling. What do you mean, not enough? Hello, uh, Dr. Carl Sagan, please. What do you mean, not enough books? What are you Who's calling? Uh, it's, uh, Bob Woodward. It's uh, Robert Woodward. I sell from the of books. What? what are you doing? Oh, the dolls are just for demo. He claims he can juggle real babies. Great for the human interest. My latest huh, book Kirk? was on the bestseller list for 12 weeks. Yeah, that's right, Woodward. Baby juggling, pretty good, huh? Judith Krantz doesn't sell like I sell. What age, babies? What age do you want? Hello, uh, uh, Doctor. Hi, Doctor Sagan. I'm calling because we have reliable uh, evidence that 
Uh, Elvis Presley may have, in fact, been an alien, and I'd like you to comment on that. What do you good. mean, not enough books? I sell books by the carload. Yeah, well, maybe you'd sell even more of them if you got associated with somebody a little more prestigious, huh? Somebody like, uh, like Sagan, for instance, Well, huh? uh, the yeah, truth is, Dr. Sagan, where, where, where is the UP I'm really with the National Register, and I was just kind of hoping that you could... Yeah. Hello? Yeah? No, Doc, Doc. Well, listen, while I got you on the phone, Doc. Doctor! Ah. What do you say? Nothing. No clue. That he was utterly astonished that I would even presume to call him. Perfect! Elvis was an alien. Sagan says he's utterly astonished. Great. That's good. That's good. The first thing you'll notice there is, hey, a soundbite. We haven't had one of those in quite some time. Am I being lazy? Mm, possibly. But I thought I'd include some sound bites with uh, this because it's only me talking about this show. I don't know if you recognize it. It didn't have... This is the two-hour pilot we're going to talk about of this show. And it doesn't have the theme song, which um, if you know the show, you know it immediately. That's... Um, you, you could probably tell from the... Um, you know, you, you I, I, <laughs> that guitar, I thought of the... Uh, alternate score to Black Devil Doll from Hell actually right there but the and then you know later on there's going to be some this is the mid 80s and in fact this is the Kenneth Johnson uh, Brian uh, Grazer Grazer uh, production of Shadow Chasers this originally aired I believe it was November 14th 1985 it was a two hour uh, pilot movie that originally aired uh, from 8 to 9 p.m. Thursday night. And if you know your scheduling and you know your history of TV, you know that pretty much every show that wasn't on NBC between 8 to 9, the second half of the 80s, was dead. Just like if you put a show up against All in the Family in the first half of the 70s or Dallas in the first half of the 80s, it was dead. And 8 to 9 was the Cosby Show and Family Ties. And then later on, uh, Cosby Show and Different World. But it was Cosby Show and Family Ties at this time. And um, Brian Grazer had, had made films with um, uh, uh, Ron Howard and they, they, they partner up uh, after this. I believe it was after this. And Kenneth Johnson had just come off of V which is a huge success and obviously Incredible Hulk. So this was sort of, I mean, hey, Ghostbusters, Shadow Chasers. Ghostbusters was the year before. Uh, comedy, good times, um, up with monsters and ghosts and things like that. I mean, it had been a while. I mean, Kolchak, obviously, and then X-Files in the next uh, decade, but that wouldn't have the comedy. And Kolchak was a little wacky here and there, but it wasn't. that wasn't full-on comedy. But yeah, Shadow Chasers was more on the comedic side. Um... Uh, I, I, I don't know if I'm going to play it on here, but like the be, before they actually got the theme, an actual proper theme sung by a woman, sort of in um, kind of like a Pointer Sisters style. I don't know why I thought Pointer Sisters right there. But you know, uh, well, you'll, you'll hear it. You'll hear it um, on the next episode, uh, I believe. Yes. Uh, but, but yeah, before they had the proper theme, you just got that little eerie opening with like um, just black background and just Shadow Chaser starring, doot, 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 and then goes into that opening uh which is uh, which i'll talk about in a moment and then the closing is kind of like it's not a whistled theme because i believe it's a synthesizer but it's almost a whistled theme and so um you don't get enough whistle theme something like that um i'm better at louding loud whistles like I'm not going to do one, but um, then then uh, then whistling tunes, but and that was a synth anyway. So, 
What is going on in Shadow Chasers? Well, uh, that, that opening you heard is Edgar Benedict, uh, uh, better known as Benny, who uh, works for a National Register, which is a tabloid. Uh, and uh, he's also an author of assorted um, thingies and uh, book, books like on ghosts and paranormal, stuff like that. Um, and uh, he's, he's a good time, as you heard in that, that episode, that that clip and that clip is basically it's not it's not fully one long take because it cuts away um at a, at a point at a at a point in there when um uh actually after the clip ends but i believe more or less all that is what you're hearing right there is all one long take with the camera tracking back as they go through the offices where all kinds of crazy crap is happening reporters on the phone there's a guy with um, flames coming out of his hands there are two bald women standing around um, there's a guy juggling baby dolls, um, all kinds of good times. And, but that, yeah, that's how we meet Benny. That's, that's that craziness. And, um, I'm not going to go through the episode beat by beat, but it just, just the opening, you get that scene's the opener. And then that immediately goes to a scene in like a suburban house where all hell sort of breaks loose and lightning strikes a tree or falls on a guy and, and, uh, I, I, like th throughout throughout the episode, you'll see on this this street in this town, I believe it's Fartham in Northern California, uh, like paint cans explode, garage doors go nuts, um, um, the walls will just flare up with flame and go crazy, and all kinds of nuttiness will happen, and that's what happens in, in the second scene, and then we meet uh, Doctor uh, Jonathan McKenzie. Uh, whose dad, who we will hear about, is was a Nobel Prize winner, Dr. McKenzie. Uh, Jonathan is, an, I believe, an anthropologist. You see him teaching a class, and then you see him um, being asked to go see Dr. Morehouse, who I guess is his boss, the head of his department. He, he wants some grant money, and he goes to talk to her. And hey, another soundbite. Dr. Morehouse! just love this place, this seashore upon which the flotsam and jetsam of history end up, hmm? This final resting place for the bizarre, the unusual. Yes. Well, most everything here fits neatly in the known realms of science, but every once in a while, something surfaces that's unaccountable, unexplainable, fascinating, completely mysterious. Duke University and UCLA used to have groups that studied such anomalies, as well as UFOs, ESP, and even supernatural occurrences, positively intriguing research. Yes, I suppose it is. But has the board met then about my grant, or...? I've been talking to a number of my colleagues, and many of us share a real frustration... About research grants? ...about the fact that there's no careful scientific research being conducted into the nature of various unknown phenomenon and unsolved mysteries. And I've decided to do something about it. Good. Oh, now, Dr. Morehouse, if you're thinking of me, I, I must be honest and tell you that I'm quite backed up just at the moment with my thesis on the possibility of a bicameral brain existing, existing in, in Australopithecus and his quasi-contemporary hominids. Yes, it's interesting. Not pioneering like your dear father's work. Yeah, well, that's why I need the grant money, Dr. Morehouse, to expand the research and begin oh, to... Get the money, Mackenzie. Oh, that's terrific. Thank but you. First, I want you to spend a few months researching what I want researched. Some recent cases of unexplained phenomena, unanswered riddles, like this one. Listen. 
and the case uh, that she sends him on is to Fartham, uh, uh, Northern California, uh, and uh, that's also where uh, Benny goes, uh, Benedict. And so Jonathan goes there, and he's trying to find his way. I think it's at Collingswood Drive. I forget. I forget exactly what the name of the road is, but he's looking for this road. And and one of the big things that happened on the road is uh, a little while ago, a man in a lovely big house, um, basically like spontaneously combusted, like upstairs. I don't know if it was quite in his attic, but and it was kind of like crazy, just like. The flame started, and his son, uh, he's hes um, divorced from his wife, who's played by uh, Marcia Strassman, um, uh, who plays Stella Pence. The guy who got burnt up is, um, I don't know, I'm calling him Mr. I'm just going to call him Pence. And then his son, Billy. Um, Billy tried to save his dad. He, he couldn't get into the room where his dad was burning. He ran down the street yelling for help, much like uh, Jamie Lee Curtis running down the street at the end of Halloween. No one will help him. And and so that that he's got a lot of guilt. Billy's got a lot of guilt over that. And um, uh, and Marcia's tra- well, Mrs. Pence, um, uh, Stella, uh, is is getting them out of there. And we learn in here that um, yeah, he sort of he uh he makes uh Jonathan makes friends with Stella and Billy and helps them do a little moving out and learns that um. Uh, I believe I believe the, her name was Angelica. There was like an, an um, one of their his aunt, Mr. Pence's ancestors, was a witch who was burnt at the stake on the Salem witch trials. And there's there's a portrait of her and there's a transcription of her trial. And there's apparently a bit of it in Latin, Latin, Latin. If you if you read it. Um, her spirit will haunt you, and and so the house is kind of haunted. And Billy sees some, you know, shaky stuff going on, and a bookcase almost f- falls on Jonathan. It's eerie, and so uh, Jonathan goes that night to the cemetery to uh, uh, find out uh, find out a little more, and he um, he ends up running into Edgar Benedict. Ah! Whoa! What, you've never seen the Merv Griffin show? You're not Merv Griffin? I've been on with him seven times, six with Donahue, Marlowe's husband. Don't you watch TV? On the PBS. Ah, one of those. I'm not alone, you know. Ken! Craig! I'm over here! Look, what are you doing here? Doing research for my next book. You've never seen my face in a bookstore? What, do you live in a cave or what? I'm researching in a graveyard at night. Ghosts. Are you putting me on? Here, here. My latest book, just out in paperback. My compliment. Edgar Benedict? And I thought you'd never recognize me. You call me Benny. Edgar's just for the press. So you, you, you followed it here, huh? What was it? Uh, was it like a, uh, a, a wispy, filmy... Male, quivering female, ectoplasmic spirit in a transparent 90-something wonderful no, no, like I, that? I couldn't actually see anything. It's just for some reason the, the garage door came crashing down and the paint cans exploded and then the, the bushes ripple. Wait a minute. How do you know about it anyway? How did Houdini get out of his straitjackets? It's what he did for a living. Did you get any photos? God, I had the camera. Yeah, but... yeah, that's how most amateurs react to the... No offense, please. Second night, Fartham Phenomenon, observed and pursued by, uh, uh... What's your name? 
Jonathan McKenzie. Hey, where are you from, Johnny? Uh, Georgetown. <coughs> Georgetown Institute. Of uh, Georgetown the... Institute? Whoa! Oh, what a great witness! You know, the, the McKenzie won the Nobel Prize? That's uh, my father, Leonard. Oh, that hurts. Ouch! That would have been sensational to have a, a Nobel Prize winner as a witness. Ah, yow! You'll do. I'm so That's... pleased. Yeah, what are you what are you doing here anyway? Well, apparently the same thing you are. Investigating this uh whatever it is. So they begin to investigate together and, and Jonathan, you know, can bring on an assistant. You know, he has a there's a lovely gal who's in a wheelchair uh, back at the uh university who who keeps giving him the goo goo eyes and who's helping him out, but he kind of enlists uh Benny to help him. Uh hopefully to try to cut down on the amount of time that this will take. And Benny ends up like, he's going to work for, I'm going to work for Georgetown. Oh my gosh. And the first thing he does is he, B Benny goes to, a lot of the houses are on sale in the street and they're all damaged from uh, the these poltergeist attacks. And Benny ends up buying a woman's house to get information from her. And Jonathan ends up saving a woman who's like garage door attacks her and goes crazy. And Jonathan is still very much on the side of this is all rational, it can all be explained. Whereas Benny is more like, mm, eh, maybe there's ghosting going around here. And uh, as Jonathan ingratiates himself in with the Pences, uh, Benny is investigating and brings over from Liverpool, again, along with putting the house on his expense report. He wants to put Flying This Lady from Liverpool over, and he brings a lady named Melody over, an older woman who drinks this kind of gross concoction and starts to feel walls. She's a wall feeler. And so they go in the middle of the night to the Pence house, and they begin investigating. And um, Jonathan sort of loses track of Melody and Benny. And as he's uh, approaching and very near the room where Pence was killed, he is visited by a spirit. My son. What? My son. Jonathan. Who are you? Mark me Yeah, there's there's something a little hanky going on with Pence's um, seances, but there's a lot of unexplained stuff happening regardless of what state-of-the-art crap he has. So I'm going to kind of wind it down there. It all builds to a big um, moment with Billy going back to the house in the middle of the night to sort of face his father and um, Jonathan and, and Benny and, and Mrs. Panstella uh, trying to stop um, whatever the heck is going on. But I'll leave it there. And, you know, the episode ends with, um, you know, Jonathan and Benny um, maybe going off on some more adventures.
Oh, and there, there's other things. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff going on in the episode uh, too. There, there's a crazy like stone mason guy who carves all the gravestones, and yeah, he uh, and his he's got a crazy wife, and and it's it's as a lot happening. So, uh, yeah, that's that's the basics of Shadow Chase. I'm I'm probably going to spoil it um, by the end, um, but right now I won't. I will say that um, uh, for the longest time. Uh, this was a very tough show to get a hold of. I, I, my copies are very good, um, but uh, someone has—I um, I won't say where they've put them—but you, you can now find them and watch them, and they're in much better quality. I mean, especially the pilot. This, this pilot uh, is uh, my copy. Of the pilot is absolute junk. With it looks terrible. It's tough to see when it's dark. It gets really mushy looking, and and lots of tracking lines. But the person, whoever. I, I think that the pilot was shown on several occasions, like in the 90s, like as a you know afternoon movie kind of thing. So someone got a better copy than what I had. Also, the copy I have doesn't have the opening and closing credits. I'm not sure why. The opening is only, what, like 20 seconds? You heard it, 20, 30 seconds. But the closing, actually, because during the final scene, uh, Jonathan and Benny walk toward, they're on the Georgetown University campus. They walk towards the camera, and the camera sort of flips upside down. And all the credits are upside down, and then the credits write themselves, and we watch the two of them walking away upside down. And then the closing credits is just that whistled theme, and you can kind of hear Benny talking and fading into the background as the credits roll. I'm not sure why someone would have cut that out, because it's the character still talking. But regardless, Shadow Chasers. Okay, I gave you a little background on the uh, show itself. Um, I, I don't know actually much about the show itself. I mean, it's it's um, you know uh, Brian Grazer and Kenneth Johnson got together and they they made a they made a show and uh, it's it's not in the vein of Ghostbusters because Ghostbusters was you know full on ghosts and craziness and 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 all the uh, technology and everything like that. This is more of like two two. Um, uh, this is, it's, it's, I, I don't want to call it X-Files, but it's, you know, you have someone who is um, uh, very skeptical, and then you have someone else who's willing to believe. And it's got a bit more comedy. Um, whether or not you find the comedy funny is, is all up to you. I find some of it very amusing. The, you're not Merv Griffin, I think is a great line, and, and there's some great stuff in it. And it, it does, I think it, it balances, it does something like, like the Doctor Who does really well, which is it can go from being very silly to being scary or ominous in a moment and there's enough ominous and scary stuff through it to to to, to uh, throughout it to lead you through the 97 minutes of the pilot um uh this this aired november of 85 i was in seventh grade um we had moved that summer my mom my dad died in 81 my mom got remarried in may of 85 oh no february of 85 sorry oh i'm actually recording this in their anniversary how terrible am i we moved out in of our of that house in uh, the house we were in, 313 Berry Road in Rondequoit, New York, on uh, July of 85, moved into 76 Kingsgate North over in Rondequoit, Rochester area. And um, so when this aired in mid-November, I would have been at a new school, um, Christ the King, a very Catholic school, obviously, St. Margaret Mary's before that, first or sixth grade. Seventh and eighth grade, I was at Christ the King. And I think in mid-November, I was still sort of regularly getting pushed around and laughed at. I know by time Christmas was there we had one big guy Anthony Salemi who was just a douche on wheels who, who would always razz me but then then the thing was that um, eventually when I realized he wasn't the smartest guy in, in, around there and I started to gain the confidence through gagging around through joking around of everyone else um, I could generally keep him under control every once in a while he would come after me but um, 
you know, by by time Christmas hit and beyond, by time eighth grade, definitely, you know, he was get out of here. But so so I think I think at this time uh, I was probably still a little iffy whiffy about the new school and the new home, and I know that um, this was the time period, basically eighty five to late eighty seven. I had a subscription to TV Guide. I had a whole bunch of beta tapes. I was recording everything, not just older shows like um, like Green Anchors. Uh, th- this was the year around December, around uh, yeah, around like within a month of this episode airing is when I discovered Green Acres. And I was taping Green Acres every day, taping other things. I got the TV guide and I would highlight all the stuff that was going on. And Shadow Chasers, for there were 13 episodes, nine of them aired on ABC, and uh, four of them aired on the Armed Forces Network. So that's how we have copies of all 13. Uh, one of them, the middle of somewhere, I believe, was preempted by a Ronald Reagan speech, which if you lived on the East Coast in the 80s, if if your show was on a weekday at eight o'clock, yeah, uh, at least once a month something would get preempted. Uh, ugh. I remember when they aired the the miniseries Fresno, the the um, soap opera parody series. Like the I was recording it, and like the third episode they preempted for a speech. And so I stopped recording and just watched the rest of it because I didn't have an hour of the six hours. And then someone I, I, I was the, someone at, at, at school um, told me, oh, they showed it after the news. I was like, are you kidding me? Like 1130? Ugh. But anyway, yeah, so 13 episodes. So this is a big two-hour pilot. And, um, and yeah, this was, I taped all the episodes that I could of this. I saw like eight of them. And then it went off the air and, uh, eventually, you know, I probably taped over those those tapes when I needed to, you know, they were kind of expensive. So uh, they were just kind of sitting there and the show was done. And, you know, there was, back then I didn't have the sort of, I need to keep the legacy, you know, kind of thing that I would now. But yeah, this this was a show that, it's funny, like, this was a show like Super Train. Uh, when I finally do Super Train, that might mean this podcast is over. But Shadow Chasers was kind of the first short-lived show. I'd seen short-lived shows before this. Obviously, Joni Loves Chachi. I seem to remember watching Struck by Lightning, uh, The Associates, Best of the West. So there were shows. Um, that Flip Wilson show with Gladys Knight. Was that on before or after this? I forget. Charlie and... Not Charlie and Company. I forget what it was called. But Oh, no, it was on after this because it was like a, a Cosby ripoff. But um, He's the Mayor. Oh, I think that was after this, too. Uh, he's the Mayor. bum ba dum dum ba dum bum yeah, so, so, and I think this was sort of the, the short-lived TV show that always stuck in my mind, like when I discovered maybe 10 years ago that you could kind of hunt around and find rare shows um, on DVD-R and such. This was, I think, literally the first one I went after. Then probably Last Precinct was the second one. Um, and, uh, yeah, so so this really is like, I think... You know, the, the previous 81 episodes have been building up to me talking about this. No, not really. I'm kidding. Because we've had too many great shows we've talked about. I have too many great people on here. Too many fun episodes. But this is, this is, this is a show that when I started this, I was like, Shadow Chasers. And the only reason I did cliffhangers, Kenneth Johnson cliffhangers, before Kenneth Johnson's Shadow Chasers, was simply because the, the format of this podcast is based off of cliffhangers. But I think the short-lived TV show Love began with Shadow Chasers, a show I looked forward to every week, and I can tell you uh, my memories as, as we go along, I should look forward to every week, but I knew from the TV guide, which had the ratings in it, Shadow Chasers was almost always on the bottom, 
you know, I don't know if that this was the first show that got destroyed by the Cosby Show, Family Ties, Slash Cosby Show, Different World lineup. You know, eventually, networks would just leave shows on for the whole season, like Sledgehammer and, and The Flash. But early on, they still thought they could beat this sort of 8 to 9 Thursday night juggernaut, and they couldn't. So I don't, I don't think Shadow Chases is the first show to go down um, in flames because of, of that time slot and those shows. But I would, I would say it's probably the second, whatever was on before Shadow Chasers, because Shadow Chasers didn't start in September, it started in mid-November. Whatever was on before, boom, that was it. So, enough of my yakking. What do I think about Shadow Chasers, the pilot? I'll start. I really, I really love the, the the show, and I really think this is an excellent. Um, Kenneth Johnson did a great job directing it, writing the acting is is good, uh, but the acting is very good, and it's it's the the the, the negatives for me are that this was this was that brief time period where um people forgot kind of how to score scary things so um there's a lot of like dur during sequences where like paint cans are exploding and garage doors are falling down you know it's like you know the sort of slap bass isn't particularly scary. I'm not sure, you know, 10 years ago, uh, you know, uh, lots of great, we had lots of great synth scores and Henry Manfredini and, and Friday the 13th, all that, but but all of a sudden, it's like we suddenly don't remember what is the scary. Now, now I know it's meant to be a, a comedy, scary, comedy, jokey show, but with some scares, but still, uh, the music, the music is my favorite, and I've actually had on one occasion when I showed this to someone, someone actually like halfway through it, just be like, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. That music's kind of driving me up the wall. So I, I also think that, and and I don't think they would have been able to do it at this time period, but I also kind of wish it had been a 90-minute TV uh, uh, thing instead of a two-hour. I think I think 97 minutes, I, I you know, there, there are very few lag moments, but there are a few scenes with sort of if you watch the Night Strangler, the 90-minute version of the Night Strangler, there are a few too many scenes with, with Vincenzo and Kolchak arguing. You know, they, they kind of argue big like once in the beginning, and then by the time you get to like the third or fourth time, you're like, okay, guys, we're covering the same ground. There's there there are a few scenes between Benny and Jonathan as much as I like them that I thought could have maybe been streamlined a little bit that maybe could have been a touch shorter, um, uh, and ah, uh, I mean I uh, but but that's about it really I mean and 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 having said that I I've I've said elsewhere um, that I think to me the the perfect length for a film is between like seventy and seventy five minutes, and so the ninety minute TV movies were that length. And so it, the two-hour ones between like ninety-five and a hundred, and and so eh, you know it's it, it works. I'm not I'm not I'm not bothered by it. It sets up the world, sets up the characters, sets up their relationship. It's got a it's got a good um, it's got a good uh, story behind it. Discovering uh, about Mr. Pence and and Billy, and there are a couple of nice twists and turns. And in the end, there's another twist, and then it leaves you with a bit of oh gosh. Um, I don't know that I fully want to spoil it, but I'll just say that um, this and mm, this this is another tricky thing about the show too. In that at the end of it, it's all kind of explained away, um, and it, oddly enough, in in 1985, I remember it's all explained away except for one thing, and I'll I'll leave that up in the air, but 
um, I, I remember as a kid being sort of slightly annoyed at that and wondering why explain it away? Why not? Why not have it be like a supernatural something or other? But they, but they do leave one thing open, and it, it's interesting because as the show goes along, it begins to. Uh, I, I, again, I won't tell you when, but sort of the supernatural stuff and the, the otherworldly, the strange stuff starts to become less explainable and more kind of crazy and unexplainable. So, uh, so um, I, yeah, that, that, that was something that kind of bothered me when I was a kid. You know, just, just let it be supernatural. Let's do it. You know, that, oh God, do we have to have like a Scooby-Doo explanation at the ending? And we, we, they do kind of do that, but, but that, that's not, not truly all that, that bothersome. It's not going to, it's not going to hurt you. Cause, cause again, there, there's a, there's enough going on and enough craziness that it's, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely worth the time. I think, uh, Jonathan and Benny together are, are a lot of fun to watch Jonathan is has a nice line in humor a little drier he clearly doesn't want to be there and Benny is always as you heard in, the, in the, you know the, those scenes there he's always very enthusiastic and he's very ready to dive in but he could also be brave when he needs to like in the in the closing sequence when Billy is being attacked by all the poltergeist little things in the house and uh, and he actually makes more or less but in a car the sort of run that Billy did when he tried to save his dad uh, and yeah, I, I, I think they work really nice together. And when the episode ended, I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. I can't wait to see more of these two together. Um, uh, they maybe slightly overplay the Jonathan's dad kind of thing. But because um, uh, Jonathan seems to be doing pretty good for himself. He's teaching at a major university. The the, the crowd likes him. I mean, he's teaching. It's very much like um, the first time you see him is very much like the first time you see Indiana Jones. Well, not the first time. When, when it, you know, when Indiana Jones is doing, you know, his regular job, his day job when he's not, you know, stealing the golden idols and things like that or going after the Ark. Um, uh, when we see him teaching, that's, that's sort of the way uh, Jonathan's first scene is. I love the flair in, in some of the directing. The closing scene in the house, the camera is kind of constantly like spinning around and spinning around. Like I don't know if it does full three sixties, but it pretty much. Uh, yes, it does. I'm watching it right now, and yes, it does full three sixties around them. And um, that you know, that the opening scene in the National Register, which is almost more or less one take, is mirrored by the scene you heard with. Um, well, you heard both of them with Jonathan and Doctor Morehouse, which is starts off in one long take. But instead of the chaos of of the National Register, it's 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 the, the scene with um, with Doctor Morehouse and Jonathan takes place in like um, like an archive archival room. So there are all sorts of statues and heads and weird things and not. I don't know if they're real heads, you know. And and so so it's kind of it's as crazy as. The National Register stuff, but it's also um, much more subdued because it is in academia. What else is great about this episode? Um, uh, I, well, um, uh, Melody there, the, the wall grabber, um, she has her charms. Um, we will be seeing more of Benny's um, pals as the show goes along. And um, I, th I think the thing with Melody is Melody starts off fine, but a little Melody goes a long way. I think, but she's, she's, she's fine. Um, she's fine. Uh, um, and, and two, I mean, you have to have her there to just show, um, 
you know what uh, what Benny gets up to, Benny's connections, as it were, and and obviously she does she does help in in some respects because she leads them to the 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 seance um, control room, as it were. the The episode I will say the episode does do one of those things that um, shows just used to do back then, where um, Jonathan clearly is falling for Stella, and Stella seems to be falling for him, and they have a sort of a, when they're staying in a motel, um, they have sort of a semi-romantic walk through the, like the garden area, and then they're, they clearly, you know, making eyes at one another. But then the moment the mystery wraps up, she's never spoken of again, and it's all over. So it's like, eh, wouldn't you maybe, maybe give her a call, try to, you know, see what she's up to. Maybe he does. Maybe, maybe it's it's just not important. But it is strange that that a bunch of time is spent on that sort of him and her chatting together and spending time together. But then when it ends, it's like, oh yeah, that's over. That's done. Yeah. What else? Oh, there is um Jonathan's friend, who's the gal in the wheelchair, whose name I'm I'm completely blanking on. I'm gonna call her Angie. But that's not her name. And yeah, she, she helps Jonathan out doing some research, going through the computer files. And so this was 1985. So when people said, I'm going to check it out on the computer, no one really, very few people had a computer in their home. My uncle did. And all he would do was manage his finances and play hangman. And um, I remember one time going over there and he was like, oh, I got this great new game. It's like, it's a courtroom trial game, but it looked exactly like Hangman. So, you know, it was, so it's, I mean, this is the time of Nightmare Weekend, you know, with the sock puppet named George controlling the computer that could turn anything into the little silver ball that would fly down people's throats and turn them into neuropaths. You know, this was a time when computers were, the, I mean, think think about, I mean, I'm sure it could be, could happen, but think about watch the episode and then think to yourself sort of that all the um you know all the stuff that you see is meant to be done by a computer and um i'm sure they could get a computer to do something like that now but it seemed semi-far-fetched when i watched it at age 12 and it um it still seems from my far fetch when I watch it now, but you just roll with it, you know, it's roll with it. this is what computers do. You know, they, they do anything. Oh, I'll check the archive. Yes, we've got it. Uh, here are all the names you need. How, how'd you get that? I don't know. I just typed in random. I just typed randomly and it happened. So I do love that. And she, she's she's a sweet gal. I don't think she actually appears again. Uh the the next episode I yeah, I don't remember her being in it. They I mean I do a p- part of the fun of the show too is that it does have that travel all over the place thing to it. Um and I think much like X Files, um it's probably all in the LA area, uh where they go to. Uh it's not like say Route sixty six or, or moving on where they, they actually go around the country. But that's okay. I mean the thing with the joy with the X Files, um, when they were in Vancouver was it looked so different when they went, you know, every place, every episode did look different, you know. But then when they went to L.A. for the last four seasons, they still did a pretty good job of making stuff look different. Um, uh, and I guess I guess that's sort of one of the things why, like, Kolchak the Night Stalker really kind of crapped out as much as I enjoyed the show. And it is a short-lived show and we could talk about it. In that, what is it, you know, Night Stalkers, Vegas, Night Stranglers, Seattle. Then the first episode, the Ripper is Chicago, and then he's in Chicago for the entire twenty episodes. That's the that's the tricky thing. I mean, I I, I would like to think that when Kenneth Johnson and Brian Grazer sat down and and created this, they were like, okay, we can't have them stay in 
Georgetown, the area of Georgetown. Um, that's ridiculous. They have to go all around the country. So yeah, so the first episode is in Northern California. The next one will be in St. Louis, which will be cool. So I think I've talked enough about this. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a fun show. It's it's um it's it's interesting because it has it, I think it has a very satisfying climax. It ties everything together nicely. There's a wonderful moment um, where um, where um, the day has been saved more or less, and Benedict kind of shows up. And it's like, I couldn't get anyone to help. No one would pay attention. I know what that kid went through. And then Jonathan kind of looks up and says, well, you must have done something right. And like a fire truck pulls up and you see cars pull up and people who didn't help the first time uh, with the, the dad are are there to try to help with, with Billy. And that's a real nice moment. It's really nice. And Kenneth Johnson, I think, I think is, is an excellent writer, is an excellent director. Um, he does a really nice job with it. And it, do, it does too sort of have that thing where you get to the end of it and um, it's, it's been a mix of the silly and the scary, and it's a setup for a show, obviously. And so, so it's, not, it's not fully satisfying, nor is it meant to be. So I feel bad for anyone who's only seen this, because you're going to be left hanging just a little bit, because you got to... It's all part of the good times. It's all part of the fun times, and it's all part of Shadow Chasers. Yes, finally, Shadow Chasers. So this episode, we get Burbage, we're in... Well, Two shows from these. I, you know, I don't like to do the shows so close together like this, but then sometimes it just happens. So we have a show. We're in 1960. We're in 1984. We're in 1985. Oops. Um, maybe, maybe, um, maybe whatever masquerade gets replaced with will be from a far distant, different time. Who knows? Who knows? So that is Shadow Chasers, the pilot. I just know Shadow Chasers, um, and it's a good time. It's a good time, I think. Uh, so let me... Is there anything else? You know what? I, 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 I'm sure there could be more that I could say, but we'll leave it there for now. And let, let me play you one last sound clip. Just I went, I went hog wild on the sound bites. This is... Um, uh, uh, Benny is... Um, the mom, Stella, is somewhere in the house. Benny is going... Benny has been injured and is going down in the street trying to get help. And Billy is just sort of standing in the middle of the room invoking the wrath of his dad and Jonathan tries to help him and uh, listen to this clip and I'll be on the other side of it saying goodnight hey dad it's not me it is you you're doing this to yourself no dad and I deserve it go on dad again I've been through that all my life, trying to make up, trying to do better so my dad will be proud of me. Just like you. But in the end, all he can do is the best you can do. And you did your very best. You tried to save him, Billy. Tried. In your heart, you know how hard you tried. And so does he. You're a good boy, Billy. Throw away all that guilt. You're not guilty. Your father would tell you that. You're not it's a heck of a scene and I did it is cut off right before a uh, reveal um, so 
uh, so if you listen to going, Dan, why'd you stop it there? Mind your own business. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, I'd like you to mind my business throughout. Uh, I don't know what I'm saying anymore. It was kind of a kind of a long episode, but I, I think it, it was worth it. Uh, first episode of 2020, everyone. Yeah. I just freeze-framed right there. Uh, pardon, I'm recording this in a different location from where I normally do. And there's a bit more noise around here, so I apologize for that. But yeah, th- thank you so much for listening. And what's, what's going on? Where are we? Uh, it was eventually supertrain.blogspot.com is the website. Feel free to leave a comment. Uh, at esupertrain1 on Twitter. Eventually supertrain on Facebook. Um, you can email me at danny, D-A-N-N-Y, slacks, S-L-A-C-K-S, at yahoo.com. I am also on um, Rock It All Week with You, the Happy Days podcast. Around the time this episode's going up, I'll be starting season three, Fonzie Moves In, and uh, The Motorcycle, I believe, is the other episode. Uh, I, I hope to, um, I haven't done a one minute with podcasts in five or six months, and I've got one that I've started, but I want to do a bunch of episodes first because I'm not sure. It's, it's, I'm not 100% sure it's, it's right, but I think it is. I think it is. I'm going to do a few more episodes on it. All Jaws ripoffs. That would be fun. That would be fun. But that's not what it is. So, uh, yeah, that, that's going to start soon. And, of course, uh, you can go on Made for TV Mayhem show. Look that up. I'm on that with uh, the great uh, Amanda, who you heard earlier, and uh, the awesome Nathan Johnson from the Hysteria Continues podcast. And that is about that. This is episode 82, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it. Come on back for episode 83, where we will um, continue the W. Hermanos uh, era of Bourbon Street Beat. We'll get the first regular uh, hour-long episode of Shadow Chasers, with theme song, and we will get the final unaired episode of Masquerade. Listen to this. This is an unbelievably great story. If you want to be such a stiff boy, it's fine, but listen to it. No, come on, let's go. Now, the woman later renounced her vows, became head cheerleader, and is now known worldwide as Sister Pep. Or Mother Pep.